Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hi, it's Susan. Happy National Women's History Month. A lot of people here in the United States know that that's what March is. And in March, on March 8th, it's International Women's Day around the world. But did you know that since 1984, here in the United States, it's also National Social Work Month? So Beckett and I figured we would honor that by taking our coverage of Jane Addams, which was two episodes, and combining it into this one mega episode. Like all of our episodes, it's broken into chapters. So if you want to think of it as a two and a half hour, six chapter audiobook, that would be good. This year's theme for National Social Work Month is the time is right for social work. Jane Addams thought her time was right for social work, even if it wasn't called that yet. To Jane and her colleagues, first at Hull House, then around the country, and then around the world, they were simply helping people in tangible and productive ways. On the show notes for this episode at thehistorychicks.com, we will link you to socialworkers.org. That's the website of the National Association of Social Workers. They have more information and a toolkit for learning and doing more. Since I have your ears for just a second, we still have a few openings for our field trip to New England, to Boston and Newport this October 16th through 23rd. And during that time, we're going to be having a locals meetup dinner cruise. That will be on October 21st. So if you're in the New England area, please come out and join us and our fellow travelers for that dinner on the 21st. While our field trip to London this June has long been sold out, there's still opening for the locals meetup dinner cruise in London on June 25th. That information is also in the show notes or visit Like Minds Travel. And, oh, I know, one more thing. We have a new merchandise shop. It's at Tee Public. If you go to our website, thehistorychicks.com, on the right-hand side, just scroll down below that long list of subjects to the button that says Shop Our Shop, and it will take you directly to our shop at Tee Public. We have all brand new designs there. More will be rolling in as time goes on, and we're really excited to be able to bring that to you. But we're even more excited right now to bring you the story of Jane Addams, the mother of social work. On with the show! And here's your 30-second summary. She's giving and she's gracious. She's smart and quite courageous. Creative and audacious. Jane Addams Double D. Her house is a museum where people come to see them. She's always glad to greet them. Jane Addams Double D. The end. Let's talk about Jane Addams. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1860, Bertie, the future King Edward VII, made it the very first visit of any British royal to the United States. 11-year-old Grace Bedell wrote to candidate Abraham Lincoln and told him he should grow a beard. The next month, he was elected the 16th president of the United States. The covered gimlet screw with a T-handle, what we know as a corkscrew, was patented. The Pony Express made its first mail delivery from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California. 18 months later, the last letters were delivered. South Carolina seceded from the Union, and Harriet Tubman ran her last mission freeing slaves. Lizzie Borden, Annie Oakley, Grandma Moses, and Juliet Gordon Lowe were born. And on September 6, 1860, Jane Addams, the future pioneer in social reform, entered this world. Laura Jane Addams was born on September 6, 1860, the eighth child of the nine children of John Wee Addams 
and Sarah Weber Adams. Though three of those children died of cholera or etc. before she was born and one died at birth, as we shall see. So functionally, Jenny, as everyone called Laura Jane, was raised as the youngest of five children. Jenny, after Jenny Lind, famous singer and recent homage, um, give E in The Greatest Showman, if you've seen that. <laughs> ah, nice. The nickname Jenny at this time was most often used for the names Johanna, Joanna, and Jane. Then Jennifer, Jennifer, relative of Guinevere, didn't become a popular name in this country until our Jenny was in her 30s. Or when I was in my zeros, seems like I had upwards of five Jennies, Jennifers, or Jens in every single class I was ever in my entire life. (laughs) Okay, well, Papa's family had been in America since before the Revolutionary War. The extra D in their last name, A-D-D-A-M-S, came from a desire to differentiate between two cousins with the same name around the time of that war. So it was the Jennifer R. and Jennifer B. of the 1770s. (laughs) He worked as a teacher and met Mama when he worked for her brother-in-law as a miller's apprentice. Now you think, oh, that's kind of lowly. Oh, no. He had a bankroll. He had a big fat wallet of cash to buy his own mills and had wisely chosen to learn in a mill before he bought one. So this is not your minimum wage worker of the time. This was a moneyed man who was on his way up. And you know what? It also shows that he wasn't going to be one of those gentlemen business owners that he really wanted to get involved in his business and know how it worked rather than just owning it. Yes. So he is billed as, you know, in her biography and other books as a self-made man. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't know that a lot of self-made men started out with $120,000. No. But that's okay. He did parlay (laughs) that initial investment into quite a fortune. He became Cedarville's first citizen, really, the most important man in town by the time of Jenny's birth. In fact, he was an Illinois state senator and a supporter of this lawyer named Abraham Lincoln, who was just about to be elected president. In fact, Abraham Lincoln called him my dear Double D Adams. I love that. That's so sweet. (laughs) Well, and I didn't find out too much about Mama's background. It seems like she came from some money, but Mm -hmm. ladies of her era were expected to be able to turn their hands to practical matters too. So she, uh, you know, since her husband was away a lot, she did become the manager of a large enterprise in his absence and not the mill necessarily, but she did feed all the mill workers three meals a day. And that's 20 people plus her whole family. So imagine making 90 meals a day with (laughs) two hired girls plus managing the whole house. So she couldn't have been that much of a fine lady. She was a very practical lady that could do a lot of things, I think. Definitely one of those roll up her sleeves, just get it done kind of people, which, you know, thrive on the prairie. And she was also billed in all these books as, quote, the angel of the household, the typical ideal Victorian woman, which is kind of easy to do when the person writing the memoir doesn't ever know you. For real? <laughs> yeah. Um, as we shall see. So anyway, she is or is not the ideal Victorian woman. We just really don't know. But she does have a big heart. I mean, that's clearly obvious. And she has a lot of energy and she likes to get things done. Well, when little Jenny was born, she contracted a variety of tuberculosis called pot disease, P-O-T-T, similar to, but not identical to the hunchback of Notre Dame, what he was going through. Um, it 
lodges in your spine, typically, and gives you a crooked back, and in her case, a very fairy-like thinness. Half of babies born to untreated tuberculosis mothers got some sort of TB, mm-hmm. and I think Jenny's had traveled from her mother. The bacteria travels from the lungs into the spine. I didn't know this was a thing. Mm-hmm. No, you could get tuberculosis in your spine. You just think of it as a lung thing. She walked leaning over to the side. She walked pigeon-toed, and she was always really self-conscious about it, which is kind of sad for a little girl. So the family doted on her, maybe afraid that she wasn't long for this world, frankly. They had literally just the year before she was born lost one of their children. So this poor little angel by the looks of her, was not going to be around for long. So you know what, you guys, rosy-cheeked children, let her play with that. Be Be nice to Jenny. It's the least you can do, you know, and all that. So she was awful spoiled, I think, as a small child. Well, war was in the air. I might uh, refer you to our Mary Todd Lincoln episodes 69 and 70 to get a little more detail on this since Jenny was only seven months old when the South seceded. And so she is not what you'd call a reliable witness. More important from a child's point of view was the fact that her mama was about to have another baby. So exciting. But unlike her previous eight pregnancies, this one seemed to be fraught with complications. She never felt well, never was very energetic. She had never had this happen before. I myself threw up for almost five months, but I only have one child. (laughs) (laughs) I did that with my first, but we have to remember she was 46 at the time. So a pregnancy on a 46-year-old woman is a little rougher. So maybe she was kind of you know, brushing it off as that. Oh. I had my last kid at 42 and it was rougher than my first one at 30. So I think that's part of it. Well, when Mama was about seven months pregnant, she was called out to help a neighbor have her own baby. But she collapsed on the way and had to be carried home. And Papa had to be sent for. He was with the state Senate in Springfield. He was away. There was a Great distress in the household. The only strong memory of her mother that Jenny seemed to have later in her life was screaming and beating on the bedroom door and her mother yelling, let Jenny in. She's hardly more than a baby herself and running in to sit by her mother on the bed and cry. That's that's it. There was a desperate attempt to save Mama by taking the baby early, which failed. And both of them died, the baby and Mama within days of her collapse. Mama was buried with her four babies, and life in the Adams house was never the same again. Jane actually wasn't even allowed to go to the funeral, and the family kind of did what a lot of families at the time did. They just kind of refused to talk through the grief, and that affected her for the rest of her life. Later, as an adult, she said, My protest against the efforts so made to shield children and young people from all that has to do with death and sorrow, young people themselves often resent. They feel set aside and belittled as if they were denied the common human experiences. That's a very long sentence um, later <laughs> in life to say, I wasn't allowed to grieve as a child. Mama was gone and we just didn't talk about it. I wonder if also that gave her some attachment issues because she never really got close to people in a way that I would consider standard, you know. Um, oh. There was always a bit of a distance, like don't get too close because at any minute, People just disappear. Perhaps not even resolved until Mary Smith comes into her life in her 30s, i.e. in part two of this episode. Interesting. I'm no psychologist. (laughs) Well, big sister Mary took over the mothering role. Uh, Mary was only 17, so she took a lot of responsibility on. But this was an era where girls routinely got married at 16, so it wasn't even considered 
strange for a 17-year-old to run the household. An elderly governess with the fabulous name of Polly Beer <laughs> sort of took over, you know, the mechanical parts, bath, dressing, you know, the childcare part. Mm-hmm. And Polly had helped raise Sarah. So I don't know how old she could possibly have been if Sarah was 46 when she died. So I don't know how much Polly could actually you know, really do. Yeah, she was in her upper 60s. Yeah. I imagine little Jenny wandering around in this atmosphere of grief. She doesn't understand what's happening, of course, where her mother is. Papa, again, he was a lot of times out of town. So Mary was in charge. Although when he was there, he was kind of an involved parent. You know, he wasn't one of those just go to the office guys. He played with his kids. He talked with his kids. And when he was home, Jenny followed him around to try and get closer to him. Anytime Papa was home, she became his little shadow. And her main goal in life, frankly, seemed to be to make her father proud of her. And there was this idol status she put upon him. She knew that he was a respected citizen in the town. I mean, men bowed to him as they went on, you know, to the point where, this makes me feel sad, she would not even walk beside him to church because... She felt unworthy of his gloriousness. You know, like, I can't be seen next to you. It destroys your street cred. (laughs) That is pretty unhealthy. It is. Although I think Papa kind of knew about that because one day she was walking by his offices and he came out and tipped his hat to her to say hello. That's charming. Yeah, like special. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I do like Papa's, I guess I'll call him Quaker values. Uh, Tell the truth. Try not to arouse envy in others. And, you know, just in general, don't be a dirtbag. Just (laughs) when there's a choice, choose to be good. He didn't even lock the front door because that implied you didn't trust your neighbors. I don't know. Quakers probably lock their doors now. But you, in that viewpoint, were supposed to ultimately decide that people were going to be good, which I think actually did percolate into Jane's mind. Because if you think about her later work, we'll revisit that maybe a little later. But her initial impulse upon meeting people is that they had it in them, whatever it was, she had faith that they would, you know, handle it if they were just given a little bit of help. So Mm -hmm. I think Papa really had a great influence on her mind as well as her little spirit by bowing. I I know. And on her ability to juggle several tasks and just keeps opening new ones, you know, just keeps starting new projects. He himself, he was the wealthiest man in town. He owned a lot of the real estate. He owned the bank. He owned a wool factory, an insurance company. He owned the sawmill. He owned the flour (laughs) mill. He was instrumental in getting the trains to come to Cedarville, which of course is just good business if you're producing something to get it back out. But um, he was active and he was always taking on new projects. So I think that kind of filtered down to her too. Jenny went to the local school, in fact, that her own father had been instrumental in setting up about 10 years before she was born. So he even had his finger in the educational system. Yeah, he was big on education. And at one point, the town library was their house. He had all the books out for anyone to borrow in town. Right there, in their house. Ooh, now that, okay, put a pin in that for an echo, too. Mm -hmm. Note to self. Other people came into their house and borrowed educational materials. I would, I'm just so intrigued by that. (laughs) You just don't realize until you, like, analyze it, how things that happen to someone when they're a little kid must get in somehow. Man, Uh what am I doing to my child? (laughs) Uh, Well... Jenny was often quite ill. 
during her elementary school years, but only at night, curiously. Stomach aches, headaches, my back hurts, etc. She never missed school for it. And did you read that people thought it was psychosomatic? Yes, throughout the early part of her life. Well, her sister Alice later said at this point, she was kind of a monster. <laughs> that... Um, that could be just older sister stuff, but it was clear that she was the boss of the domestic side of the house. If Jenny cried, everything had to stop and we all had to get up out of our beds and deal with the situation. <laughs> when Jenny was six, a couple of things happened that changed the course of her life. First, the second sister in line, Martha, died of typhoid fever while she was away at school. That is child number five that Papa has lost. Incidentally, Jenny was not allowed to go to this funeral either. About a year and a half or so later, Papa remarried to a widow from town named Anne Hostetter Haldeman, who was once Martha's piano teacher. Her late husband had, in fact, been the town's other Miller, the competition. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The not as successful competition, I have to add. Although Anne saw herself as this lady of refinement, very interested in the arts and of quality items around her, and her husband didn't. Uh, make enough to provide that for her. And when he died, Anne and her children had virtually nothing. So she has this image of herself as being this woman of refinement, but she has a bank account that says, holy crap, I'm a pauper. Well, she did have definite views about airs and graces. She yes. held herself to a higher standard of culture than her pioneer yes. neighbor. She reminds me a lot of if you watched the 1970s series, Little House on the Prairie, um, she's Mrs. Olson mm -hmm. <laughs> to me. Oh, yeah. The house was remodeled. We add bathrooms. We put velvet curtains up. The kids were remodeled. Everyone dressed more nicely and had nicer table manners. Society was important. So invitations went out. They had um, evenings, you know, dinner parties, etc. Education was vital to her as well as her husband. So that is a point upon which they met. But I will tell you, in contrast to wife number one, the angel of the house who loved everyone and kept everyone sane, although there was a time that the kids were playing by the river and she had told them not to and she pushed the son in the river. <laughs> to teach him a lesson. So how genteel and gentle was Sarah exactly? <laughs> we have a little hint that she may not have been, you know, gliding along on wheels all the time. <laughs> no, she's very, very human. And also Sarah cooked. I want to throw that in there. Sarah cooked and did not. How do you get to be this age raising a family and not Cool. Um, hello, you have servants for that? Anyway, I am hereby not assigning virtue to the ability to cook. My husband is a chef, and that's not what makes him a good guy. I push 300 enter, and I'm medium okay most of the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. That one just jumped out at me. I think we might have had a different impression of Anne, which is fascinating to me. I didn't care for her very much. Well, I didn't necessarily care for her. Her temper was very violent. It was explosive in a way that Sarah's had never been. It brought a lot of energy in the house. And I honestly think her husband was a little afraid of making her mad. That's kind of healthy, actually. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I kind of point to Jane's later calm demeanor, the fact that all hell could be breaking loose around her and it doesn't flap her to mm -hmm. this period of her life. When someone in the house has a temper like this, it does at this point seem quick to rise and quick to dissipate. She was frustrated by society's pressure on her. She always wanted to be an artist. But instead, what happened? She got married at 16 the first time and then married the second time, not for love, just to give her children a father and hope for a future. And I'd be a little grumpy too. And there's nothing, society thought that was just fine. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so we don't know too much about Anne's desires, but she did say that if, you know, if she could just have pleased herself, she would have been an artist. And there was nothing in her life that allowed that to happen. No, that's true. And she did do good things for the family. I mean, she was a big reader. So she shared that with Jenny and she liked the family to do things together and to go on vacations. They had never done that before. So they went on vacations together as a family. Now, I don't want you to think that she was a wicked stepmother at all. Far from it. She, in fact, said the following, and I quote her, It's quite an honor to be loved by such a family of children as this. Who, if you think about it, were mostly her companions a lot of the time. Papa was often out of town at the Capitol. I I think that she was a nice person who just was in a bad circumstance. Okay. She does rub me the wrong way later, but... In this period, I don't think she's bad at all. There's one thing that she was not, not buying, which I love this, was all of this hypochondria of Jane's. She followed a policy of good attention rather than, I'm going to call it romancing the sickness. Okay. You know, like, let me take you horseback riding. Go play with your stepbrother, Georgie. She kept her busy and outside playing instead of brooding. I think that's a good thing. And the thing that she brought to the family that was the greatest was her son, Georgie. (laughs) He was her best friend. (laughs) Although I have to say, the stuff they got up to, I am just like, what the frick? They would go down to the sawmill and ride the log like some kind of horrible James Bond movie, daring themselves to stay on until they almost got their faces cut off by the blade. Okay, you know who else did that? Who? Clara Barton as a child. (laughs) You know what it reminds me of is my grandma's brother sticking her in quicksand to see who's the fastest to get her out. Or (laughs) this is just around the same time period that Elizabeth Cady Stanton's sons shot, somebody shot somebody in the eye with an arrow and somebody else like pushed the baby out on the lake on a raft. (laughs) I'm just like, maybe there is a reason we have nine children because there's a little bit of wastage. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. I am just like, what is happening? Oh my gosh. Well, I love their relationship because they are the same age. I think there was a nine month difference between Jenny and Georgie. So they got along great. They had equal temperaments. They worked together terrifically. They got into trouble together terrifically. They would play for hours. They made up little calling cards that said artist on them. And then they pretend they were artists. How cute is that? Which probably upset Anne now that I'm saying it out loud. Uh, well, or maybe she liked it. Maybe she's maybe. like, well, there's my heritage coming out and he has a chance to be an artist. Oh, maybe. Well, Papa hadn't exactly been down with too much reading of fiction. And that is a very Victorian conceit that novels are not so good for the brain because they're made up and they're, you know, not real. But Anne came in with a new attitude about story time. Notably, Anne bought Jenny a copy of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. That's episode 104 of the History Chicks, with which Jenny became obsessed. Now, based on what you know already about Jenny, would you agree that she's a Joe? Uh, yes, I would. I would. And she read and reread Little Women over and over again. And I think the uh, atmosphere of service within the March household kind of filtered down to her, too. So 
that's a terrific thing that happened because she read fiction. <laughs> there's, there's a not good thing. Those of you who read Little Men, remember Little Men is my favorite of all the Little Women books. Jenny and Georgie got all inspired by Little Men to burn up some of their toys in sacrifice to the naughty kitty mouse, just like Daisy and Demi. So and I, cute. <laughs> I am wondering if little kids all over the country are like taking their favorite lead soldiers and paper dolls down to the river to burn them up. Life imitating art. I love it. As long as nothing else burns down, I don't have a problem with it. They were so good. for. They're like these buddies. They had adjoining rooms. They shared pets. They went to school together. I love that each of them had each other during this period of their lives. Well, Jenny learned the ladylike arts and graces, of course, and was very strict on etiquette. And Papa was insisting that his daughters be given the education of his youth, too, and required all of his daughters to bake him a perfect loaf of bread on their 12th birthday. Now, he's a miller, so that actually makes a little sense. Like, welcome, <laughs> to, the, welcome to the family. This is your bat mitzvah or whatever, your bread mitzvah. <laughs> I literally just, that came out of my head. I hope that's not offensive. <laughs> Speaking of Louisa May Alcott, a prominent scene in Louisa May Alcott's Eight Cousins. Also, the first loaf of bread that the child bakes, she becomes a woman and a member of society. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it was a very popular thing in literature. Well, I will tell you, the first one didn't rise. And as a watcher of the Great British Baking Show, I'm so sorry about that. That sucks. They had just watched um, uh, Bread Week <laughs> from the last season when I was reading about that. I was like, oh, look at that. Well, the second one was too holy, mm -hmm. whatever that means. And the third one was just right. But she basically spent her entire 12th birthday trying to get this knocked out. <laughs> so sad. It's probably a good thing that he didn't require it of his wife <laughs> as like a test. <laughs> She would not have passed that test. No. So back to Jenny. She liked to read, of course, and reluctantly rode that horse and went to piano lessons. But mostly what Jenny loved to do more than anything else was to study science with her stepbrother, Georgie. The older kids had all gone to marriage or careers. And when these two were the only two still at home, it was, you know, bottles and beetles. And you like these threes, botany. Alliterations, yes. But man, did they study science and chemistry all day, every day. It was considered a gentleman's pastime. Both of her stepbrothers went off to become doctors. And Jenny thought, well, uh, perhaps that's what I'm going to do too. Women had been able to become doctors for almost 30 years in America. It attracted the smartest ladies, really. And one book I read said it also attracted the lowest echelon of men. It was considered the lowest profession for a man to be respectable. And that is an interesting dichotomy. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. But I think it's interesting that women were allowed to be doctors at this period in time. Because we don't really think about that. You know, we, we always joke about the medicine of this era, but I always imagine a man administering it, not a woman. Well, and I guess I was a little surprised that there had been a 30-year history. So she's not even remotely a pioneer in wanting to become a doctor. That was a... That was a path one could take at mm -hmm. this time. At 17, when she'd graduated from the red brick schoolhouse down the road, she really, really pushed to go to Smith College in Massachusetts. On the DL, there was a medical college that trained women nearby for afterward. Shh, because Papa was not down with this. But Papa said no. Smith's too far. Massachusetts, no. You can go to Rockford Female Seminary like all your sisters did. It's, it's close. It's good enough. Mm -hmm. And it was a big disappointment. 
Yeah, because another thing that she was thinking was she wanted a degree. And at the time, not all women's colleges, when you completed the coursework, you got a certificate, not a Bachelor of Arts or of Science. You got a certificate. And she really wanted that degree, which is something that Smith offered. She wanted it so badly that she went to Northampton, Mass., and took the entrance exam to get in and passed it. But dad said no. She had to go to the UCCA, which would be the university closest to the Cedarville area. Oh, sad. (laughs) Well, she did agree to go to Rockford, even though it was stuck in the past and not that academic of a place for a person who wanted to push herself. Plenty of women's colleges existed with hardcore curriculums. Vassar. Wellesley had literally just opened the year before, but instead, ugh. You know, she hoped she'd be able to change Papa's mind later anyway. So this Mm. is that year. Okay, I'll go there a year. Let's why make waves? That's fine. So Rockford it is, I guess. And with this little bump in the road, let's take a little break. We'll be back with Jane, the college years. Jane is packing her trunks for her safety school. Surely it's going to be okay. The mission of Rockford Female Seminary at the time was to, quote, teach young women to elevate, purify, and adorn the home, and to give oneself fully for the good of others. Sounds like an academic wonderland. Their other goal was to produce Christian mothers and missionaries for the evangelization of the world. Jane was not a religious person herself. She was constantly seen as a little challenge because it was known she wasn't baptized. How do you know that? Um, It's in your record. Is it really? Yeah. When you're baptized, you have a church record. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. It says you're a member of that church and whether you were baptized or not. And no, I know. So, but like, is that in your college application? To Rockford Women's Seminary? I'm going to go with yes. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, she didn't necessarily mind being a challenge because she's like, I'm a rock. Please continue to beat your waves against me. I don't care. <laughs> like, so whatever. <laughs> so it didn't bother her at all. Um, So... That's good. Everyone likes a little challenge. And if you're determined to learn something, though, you will. And she was. She took on extra classes, set herself more lessons than were assigned, read, read, read. Like me, she'd have a few books on the go at once. You know, one open in every room. It's, (laughs) isn't it weird that Joe March and Hermione don't know each other? Because they're hanging out of my head. (laughs) Sometimes sometimes I have a problem. With uh, That's funny. I'm imagining this uh, little party between you and Hermione. And Joe sitting at the bar. Yeah, not talking to each other because we're all reading a book. (laughs) These are my best friends. We get each other. Well, she was obsessed, like Louisa May Alcott, with the works of Emerson. And here is a small world situation. During one of Bronson Alcott, remember that's Louisa May Alcott's father, uh, one of his speaking tours, he gave a lecture on transcendentalism at Jane's College, and she lined up for front row seats. And she won the right to clean the mud off the great man's boots, which would be an Instagram post today, you know. (laughs) 
She considered that the greatest honor. Yeah, well, it kind of was. Hashtag hero. Hashtag wish you were me. (laughs) Well, she wrote and later was editor of the school's literary magazine. And I do think it's curious that one of the pieces she wrote was about, quote, beggars. It was very disdainful. The premise of this article was that a man must give full equivalent for everything he receives in life, which was a little harsh considering her future calling and life, upper classes at the time thought that the poor people were poor because they were bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's a product of her environment, that's for sure. I will say in her defense, when she took over this literary magazine, it had kind of a religious theme and she kind of switched it around to address issues that applied to the students. She learns, you know, just like all of us, if you won't go back in any of our past, you're going to find something that we said that was stupid. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. And well, let's just say that concept of hers did evolve, you know, Mm -hmm. more on that later, I guess. That's um, that's the bulk of our episode today. So um, (laughs) in some of her essays also, she talked about the changing role of women. And I quote, why should not a woman of strong ruling mind be our president when a needy time comes in place of a man of weak sense and administrative ability? Mm -hmm. So I I hereby let that settle. I think... (laughs) I think college women, this vanguard of the first, 0.24% of their age, two in every thousand even attended college at all, Mm -hmm. and many, 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 many dropped out from overwork or to get married. They had a hard road to hoe. What was the role of an educated woman in society? Nobody knows. Nobody. Teacher? Missionary? Doctor? That's all you can do professionally. Did men want educated wives? Did educated women want to be wives? <laughs> I don't know. Were they trying to be men? Everyone was Concernicus. What happens to the feminine side when the ladies enter the men's sphere? Is anyone going to cook? <laughs> I mean, she was the only woman in a co-ed debating contest, and you'd have thought the earth had stopped spinning. <laughs> yeah, she was on debate team. Does that, does that surprise anybody? <laughs> But I will say it wasn't all nose to the grindstone. I love the description that I read of Jane and her friends making illicit midnight feast in her room. She would lock the door and they'd have popcorn and nuts and make sure that the light, you know, no light escaped. And it was not allowed. They would also have these really deep intellectual discussions. And during one of these discussions, they realized that um, there was a school of thought out there that real intellectual thought could be had if one ingests opium. So guess what they did? They were found lying fully dressed on the floor. Yeah, it didn't really work out too well for them. Mm -hmm. Other things on the menu included oysters, fried eggs that they made in buttered paper boxes. And I thought, what the heck? Okay, I looked that up. That's still a thing. It's called en papillote. Really? I hope also they had a big glass of water because everything is so salty. Or maybe beer. We know the water at Rockford Seminary is not not good because her sister Martha died of typhoid that she picked up from drinking water from a well that was not situated far enough away from the lavatory situation. Let's just put it that way. So perhaps water is not the best choice. Yeah, I hope they're drinking beer. <laughs> no kidding. We keep covering these ladies like Georgia O'Keefe that are more like cats. Like the more people like them, the more distance they want. She at the time of her college experience, called getting close to someone, quote, descending into friendship. She also, I do believe, has no recorded suitors of any kind. One book I read tried to scrape together a romance out of scraps, really, but there we are. I think we probably read the same book. It actually had two 
uh, male suitors because men were brought into the campus, you know, for mixers and picnics and, you know, general frivolity, which was highly chaperoned. But there was two suitors apparently in this mix. Or not. That's the thing. I'm kind of not buying either one of these things. They're one even supposedly rose to the level of a proposal. Maybe it was a proposal. It seemed similar to the Jane Austen proposal. Like, did it happen? Did it last more than a night? I mean, like, it didn't seem like a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you said, um, you know, she pushed people away, which, you know, she was an independent thinker. I can see that. But she was also quoted as saying, I am a great admirer of platonic love or rather pure sacred friendship. I think there is so much higher than what is generally implied in the word love. But that was later. Oh, okay. I'll, that was that was post okay. Mary, am I right? Maybe. I you know what I didn't write down the time. Okay. So it, <laughs> she's changing again. Excellent. Excellent. I love it. <laughs> I do love uh she was kind of bold and outspoken. One time she corrected the pronunciation of Don Quixote to the teacher who actually was also the woman who was running the school. And she was suspended for two days for being impolite. <laughs> so she raced off and she, you know, did what a lot of angsty teens do. And she wrote a poem. Here it is. Life's a burden. Bear it. Life's a duty. Dare it. Life's a thorn crown. Wear it and spurn to be a coward. Oh, my gosh. If only she had had some cure or the Smiths to listen to. <laughs> yeah. She had another weird, weird hobby at school, taxidermy. Mm, it seems really brutal to me <laughs> to have all these little ladies like, and her dad was all on board with it. He sent her a hawk once, just a hawk. And she just like ripped its guts out and stuffed it and mounted it on her wall as if it was make no never mind. <laughs> <laughs> This right. just kills me. That also reminds me of Beatrix Potter. I'm like, that's kind of a cold go hobby. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of cool. I mean, she's quite an individual. I love it. She was the valedictorian of her class, ultimately, and much was made of her, quote, exhaustion and nervousness after graduation. But I want you to imagine this. You've spent four years being celebrated by your peers for your intellectual achievements. And now society expects you to stop all that and get married, rent a house, and join, quote, the real world. We talked about how stressful that could be during the 1950s Housewives episode. There's just not that much support for women to keep alive their intellectual curiosity in either time period as adults, which led in the 1950s to a Valium addiction epidemic and in Jane's 1870s to diagnoses of, quote, hysteria. As a result, the graduate, and I quote, this is from Jane, the graduate either hides her hurt and splendid reserves of enthusiasm and capacity go to waste, or her zeal and emotions are just turned inward, and the result is an unhappy woman whose vitality is consumed by vain regrets and vain desires. What do the graduates have to look forward to? And she didn't get the degree. Not then. A year later, she, the school turned to Rockford College, and they gave degrees. Her class got them. They were the first class to get a degree, even though they were already gone. So that's good. So she got her degree from Rockford eventually. <laughs> well, she still had hopes of Smith. She ended up at odds with her father over her further education. So she didn't know that the degree program was going to um, 
come into place right. at her current college. So she thought, and Smith agreed, that you could go there, go a year, and get a degree from Smith because you had a lot of previous work that would transfer, you know. Or what about University of Edinburgh Medical School in Scotland? No, yeah. no, 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 no. He wanted her to be the daughter at home, a companion, a credit to his investment among his friends. And she couldn't manage to wear him down about this. And she was so frustrated. She was 21 years of age and had no more autonomy over her life than a child of seven, which is the classic position of grown-up lady persons throughout history. As a fun cue, on a family vacation, Papa died suddenly of a burst appendix. He left her the equivalent of $1.2 million in today's money. I do want to point out, though, he died without a will, which sounds really bad. But the reason he did is that he trusted in the inheritance laws that he had helped pass in the Illinois legislature, (laughs) that they would take care of the family properly. He just trusted it. He's like, I don't need a will. The widow of the deceased receives two thirds of his fortune and any children receive a portion of the remaining third. And that's just how it went. So he left her very well off monetarily and also with an amazing amount of guilt and uncertainty. I was thinking coldly, maybe. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, now you can do whatever you want. You know, go to Scotland, Bonnie Lassie in medical school or whatever. But I am not recalling the fact that this man was her hero. What he thought was very important to her, his life of service had been the ideal she'd been striving for. And, you know, he died right in the middle of her inability to persuade him to see her point of view. So as far as she knew, if she went to medical school, she was just betraying his trust and destroying his memory. Jane decided to go ahead and enroll in the Women's Medical College of Philadelphia. Mostly that choice was created because stepbrother Harry. Oh, wait, I didn't tell you. (laughs) Jane's sister had married their oldest stepbrother. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And you know what? Is that even legal now? I wondered, step-siblings marrying? Yes, Even now, in every state except Virginia, you can marry your stepbrother if you want to. But in Virginia alone, no matter how long the parents were married or not married, even if the stepsisters and brothers ever lived together. No, not possible in Virginia. Oh, I I wonder why Virginia of all places. Isn't that funny? But anyway, it was perfectly legal. So that stepbrother and her sister and stepmama all wanted to live in Philadelphia. So kind of as an unmarried woman, she was expected to stay with her chaperone and Anne wanted to live with her son. So it works out. And it was also an arrangement that Anne wanted for Jane and Georgie. Georgie was in school in Baltimore, which is very close to Philadelphia. So maybe they could get together. There's a lot of scheming during this point, I think, to get these two married. Well, Jane went to work instead. Uh, (laughs) At her medical school, there was an emphasis on female anatomy because who, after all, were going to be their patients, not men. Medical schools for women were founded on the principle that women, out of delicacy, their upbringing, kept their concerns away from their male doctors until things had progressed to a point of no return. Having women doctors would save women's lives, frankly. And parts of it really appealed to her, I think, the book learning parts. Practically speaking, though, she hated dissection of bodies, even after all that taxidermy. (laughs) (laughs) But more than that, more than that, what she hated about medical school was this weird dead end that she seemed to be headed for. Even if she was a fully qualified doctor, male doctors would give her no respect. In fact, often female medical students were jeered at and spat at in the street. It's, I don't even know. Conservative men would regard her as sort of a monster for operating outside of her sphere. Her own instructors, in fact, were 
firmly steering their female medical students into missionary work, where I have to tell you, it was sure they'd be poorly paid and awfully lonely. And here Jane was thinking this was where she could put all of her energy, all of her brain power. And it turned out it was just another stupid bucket with a lid on it for the world to put her in. It didn't help, I don't think, that her stepmother was at her every day to stop that reading and pay calls with me, greet her guests like a real lady, go out with Georgie, etc. She's just like not letting her study, not letting her focus, saying it was ridiculous. I mean, really not being supportive at all. And Jane, frankly, had a breakdown. In the spring of her first year of medical school, she dropped out. She had headaches, crying spells, fatigue, body aches. Nowadays, you know, luxury of hindsight or whatever, I would say she'd be diagnosed with depression. Mm -hmm. But then the doctors just nodded gravely and diagnosed these little ladies with neurasthenia, hysteria, that blanket terms for ladies who just can't seem to accept their limited sphere in life. Hmm. She was admitted to a hospital in Philadelphia that was run by a man. Did you ever read the book, uh, The Yellow Wallpaper? Yes. Yes, that's the man that ran the hospital. It was written by one of his former patients, and it's based on her experience. This guy's theory was take these women and cut them off from everything, have no stimulation at all, no reading, no writing, no visitors, just solitary confinement that will correct them. Because he believed neurasthenia was caused by overexertion of the brain. Why were so many of my patients educated young women? Aha. Obviously, they need to rest their brain. So um, yeah, no going outside, no human interaction, no talking, no reading, nothing. There's nothing to do. You try that for a day. I mean, I know we're a little spoiled now because we get mad when a page on the internet takes seven seconds to load. We're like, forget this. I'm turn it off. <laughs> so maybe we are not good examples. So try it maybe for 15 minutes even and not fall asleep. Just try it, you know, look around. There's nothing. There's nothing to do, nothing to think of. It's so frustrating. See if you don't go crazy. Part of it was okay. Yep. She had a high dairy diet. She had massages. Nice. But she also had electroshock therapy a lot. I think while getting massages, because I do believe he had those electrodes on his hands. And also to have a male person massaging you seems weird. And that is where I am not going to go any further with the part of the therapy that I don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to leave that for your own personal rabbit hole. I think there was some genuine abuse happening between doctors and their female patients at this time. And I think it really emphasized the need that women had for women doctors, if only to prevent what is currently happening. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, Jane came out worse <laughs> than she went in. Also, her stepmother was pressuring her so hard to marry her stepbrother, George. Also, also, her brother Weber had to be committed to a mental institution because there was too much societal pressure on him as the only son of his father. Seems to be the consensus. There's just so much untreated depression and no one in Victorian times talking about their feelings. Mm-hmm. I don't see how it could ever, I mean, get any yeah. better. And there's about eight more years of this simmering under the surface. Her brother, he was, but he was hearing voices, which isn't a symptom of depression. But Georgie was suffering from depression and not just because Jane wasn't going to marry him. Well, there seems to be some kind of theory that George was a homosexual. And his mother was pressuring Jane to marry him to both hide it and to cure him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't quite work out, now would it? No, indeed. <laughs> 
during this time, while everybody was battling mental illness, Jane actually had an out for the chronic pain that she was having in her back. Her brother-in-law, Harry, who was now a doctor, could perform a new surgery on her to straighten the curvature of her back. The theory was create scar tissue alongside the spine to straighten it out, but it required her being in bed for six months. And then after that six months, when she could stand, she was put in an extremely restrictive corset made out of steel and whalebone. But it was successful because the pain was gone when she was done with the therapies. A long therapy, (laughs) painful operation but success. Oh, 19th century surgery. I just, that's all I have to say about that. Oh, and to create the scar tissue, they like went in and put like caustic chemicals to create scar <laughs> tissue. <laughs> well, there is another remedy for stress management available to the upper class Victorian woman, probably two. I forgot laudanum. <laughs> but uh, what I mean is the grand tour that's capitalized in Jane's case a two-year vacation in Europe, which where do I sign for that <laughs> rest cure? Um, that's what happens when you have $1.2 million and no official things to do, I suppose. So when they were in London, they made a little field trip to the poor section. Gosh, that was so popular to do. Like gangs of New York. Do you remember that the well-heeled what ladies were goggling at the poor people? Yeah. that's No, that I mean, I don't remember from that, but that, that was a thing to do at this time. It's a different existence than we're used to. Let's go look. Like the human zoo or something. Going slumming. That's literally where this came from. Um, And something that stuck with Jane is the fact that people would line up late, late Saturday night to buy the rotting produce left over on the vegetable carts. They were hoping. They were hoping for it. That's the best they could expect. Vendors couldn't sell it on Sunday and it wouldn't last on Monday. So they let it go at a really cheap price and would throw these rotting cabbages at people who were glad to get it. And that was kind of an eye opener to a sheltered woman who had never been anywhere like this or seen anything like this, urban poverty was not camouflaged by, you know, the smell of hay and the sunlight and trees around the bend. No, it was out in the open for her to see. And it was really shocking. And Mm -hmm. it stuck with her mind. She um, felt guilty at her own privilege when she caught sight of society's undercarriage. Like, what is she doing with her life? You know, don't get me wrong. There were glorious, glorious sights. She met amazing people. She signed a guest book right after Susan B. Anthony had and was looking around like, oh, is she still here? You know, (laughs) I mean, there were great experiences. She learned a lot. She was unfulfilled. I know. Play the small violin. Jane's at the opera, you know. Yeah, right. But um, she longed to be useful and to have a purpose. And the things that she had seen were just kind of making her feel like she wasn't doing anything with her life. If she were a man, she had so many choices. Mm -hmm. And as it was, not so much. She was all for taking care of her nieces and nephews and said that one of the greatest duties and pleasures on earth was the care of a child, of a trusting child. That was something that she felt was like one of the highest callings. She had nothing against, you know, people being mothers or the existence of children just maybe wasn't for her. Now, you know, you think you're a Joe from Little Women. Jane was definitely a Joe from Little Women. I'm finding myself, in fact, feeling very grateful to Louisa May Alcott that she had written that book to tell Jane she wasn't alone. I'm starting to feel differently about the importance, in fact, of that book because people, for people with no role models, here's Joe doing what she wanted within the framework of a family and her society. And I hadn't really valued how important that was before now. Jane began to feel a pull toward charity work. She was working with a, quote, 
colored, her words, nursing home and orphanage, which lit a spark burning low of purpose in her life. This may be where she could do some good. But instead of doing some good, she decided to go on the European therapy tour again. This time she took her friend Ellen Gates Starr, who she had met her first year of Rockford. Ellen didn't come from as wealthy a family as Jane, and she had to drop out after her first year. But the two became really good friends, and they corresponded more than Jane wrote to her own family. So they'd been close this whole time, even though they didn't live together. And Ellen was a teacher in Chicago. So Jane went to Europe. Ellen met her there. And they decided to tour around, which they did. They went to France, Germany, Rome, Madrid. But when they were in Spain, they went to a bullfight. Now, Ellen and Sarah, the other woman that went, left. It was just too gory for them. But Jane was totally into it and she was cheering. And she had this moment where she realized not only did her life not have any purpose, but she had no empathy. She was not feeling any empathy for these bulls and these horses that were being slaughtered right in front of her. So that's <laughs> she, kind of a woke moment. <laughs> she had an epiphany during a bullfight. Now, this is hard for me to get my head around, this chest-beating Victorian rationale, I guess. So she spent the night in agony about this. I'm a horrible person. I'm numb to real suffering. I'm a monster, you know. Where is that Depeche Mode? Where? <laughs> when you need it. And she got an idea for a project to help the poor. So that's the good thing that happened out of this night of sleeplessness and chest beating. What's good about this was that she was in the company of a supportive friend, more than a friend, maybe. To be honest, Ellen was in love with her. I will say, I don't know that it was reciprocated. It doesn't even matter. Because, you know, if you have a project and you don't get good feedback from just, you know, you throw out the little idea, hey, I'm going to start a history podcast, for example. <laughs> it could just die. So you have to get the right fertilizer at the right time. And they talked and planned and schemed until the idea became a force, a goal. So it was good that Ellen was there and so willing to accept her idea. They took a visit back to London to the famous Toynbee Hall Settlement House, and that changed her life forever. It's time for us to take a little break. We are leaving Ellen and Jane on the cusp of their world-altering field trip. And when we come back, we will see how Toynbee Hall inspired Jane's life's work. as it had been practiced, was sort of Lady Bountiful. You know what I mean? Like, the lord of the manor might send you a leg of lamb. Emma Woodhouse stops by with bread and a blanket. Or, on a larger scale, Parish Relief or the Workhouse. Toynbee Hall was a radical departure from this. For one thing, it was not based on religious principles, but on humanism. That is to say, their philosophy was, all people, regardless of station, have a duty to evolve into their best selves. Like, what even is that? What does that mumbo-jumbo translate to? In the real life, what it means is that 
people, men in Twimby Hall's case, of means lived and worked among the poor. They dedicated their time to providing service to those who were less well off, not only feeding their bodies, but feeding their minds. There were classes there. There were social clubs. They would bargain to local officials for better facilities and services from schools to street repair. In short, Toynbee Hall was there to create a sense of community, of everyone in a society pulling their own oar to make the whole boat move. And Jane's heart just soared. She had it. This is her quest, her purpose. She was going home and she was going to recreate this project in America, except for in her settlement house, the providers of services were all going to be women. That is going to be the way that college-educated women would make a difference. So she is going to help out her fellow sistren. Is that the real word? (laughs) I think so. So it just seemed like a win-win situation. Like this is going to be a way to give people like me purpose in our lives. She and Ellen settled on going to Chicago, which was in the throes of what can only be called explosive growth. Not even 20 years before the whole thing burned to the ground, you know, the cow kicked over a bucket and the next day, 90,000 people were homeless. The, The great fire had happened and this rebuilding had turned Chicago into this powerhouse of energy, just manufacturing of population. It grew 530. 38% in area within the space of 19 years. 68% of the population were immigrants. 10 more percent were the children of these immigrants. That's 78% of people aren't Native Americans. You know, like uh, half the children, though, born in Chicago died before the age of five. Half of them. It's, it's, yeah. the explosive growth is not good. The same thing kind of happened in London. You know, the, the crest of the Industrial Revolution. Everyone moved into towns. The towns aren't ready for this. Nobody's ever had this kind of density before. The problems of this kind of urban population were just unknown. And Chicago was kind of suffering. At least 80% of the citizens in Chicago lived in just grinding poverty. There were labor riots. There were strikes. Very common, just out of desperation. Because on the other side of the spectrum, what do you have? You have Marshall Field. You have the Palmers of the Palmer House. You have the the Pullman car fortune. The Armor and Swift meatpacking millionaires. It was America's Gilded Age. They even had the first skyscraper. It was the first metal frame skyscraper. It was 10 stories tall. So this is like a cartoon of the Gilded Age right here. This is like, I can't believe the rich are so rich and the poor are so poor. It was like the Titanic, you know, people are eating pieces of bread in that stupid third class lounge while other people are eating caviar on the top floor. Well, the wealthier women of Chicago had taken on the cause of ameliorating the sufferings of the poor. They were kind of battling injustice on many fronts, prison reform, um, unwed mothers, schools, orphanages, factory workers' rights child labor. There was a powerful institution called the Chicago Women's Club with 500 members in it of all strata of society, which I thought was very cool. And it was there that Jane and Ellen began networking for support for their scheme. And I don't think we mentioned this earlier, but Jane is good in a room. She has got some kind of magnetism that people cannot resist. I don't know what it is. Some people have it. Some people don't. But, you know, um, word of mouth support started to go all over the city. And Jane and Ellen's project started to get, importantly, social credibility. So that's a currency that you can't really put a finger on. But the fact that it was respectable and it was a project that the the people who could move mountains could get behind, 
That was very, very important. And that was really mostly Jane, I have to say. I don't think Ellen was that dynamic. No, she wasn't, but she was a lot quieter. But Ellen had lived in Chicago. She was a teacher at a girls' school. So she knew the people. I mean, she might not have known them, you know, hey, how's it going, Ellen? But she knew who they were. Ellen was able to kind of point Jane at the right people. And then Jane did the talking. It was a good partnership. Mm -hmm. Well, to that end of social credibility, Jane at last was baptized. And the biographers seem to think this was a calculated PR move to help enlist support from prominent clergymen. I'm going to just leave that up to everyone and their own conscience <laughs> as to did she suddenly become religious or was it expedient for her project? I, you know, she even yeah. told Denise later in life that she often had lacked confidence that there was even a God at all. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't really know. This was didn't seem to be a spiritual quest for her, but a practical one. Also, Ellen was extremely religious. So I think that that had an effect on her. You know, she must have been saying, you need to be baptized so that you can have eternal salvation and just to kind of quiet her down, maybe. You know, it was a good PR move. It covered her bases and it got Ellen happy that she was baptized. It was a win-win-win. Well, I don't know. Jane was very wary of people who wanted to help but insisted in putting religious strings on their money or their time. She mm -hmm. called it harpooning for souls, and she was specifically not down with that mm -hmm. technique. Well, prominent church officials came on board. They saw what was happening. How could they not? Around the city. And they were kind of helpless as to like, I don't know how to help my parishioners. I just don't, I don't understand the dynamics of what is happening in the city. And no one did. Um, so this idea, awesome. You know, let's get behind this. And soon Jane and Ellen were invited really everywhere to speak about their idea. They wanted to have personal and real contact with the poor of Chicago. So Jane knew how to play this game. She would market herself this way. I'm not reinventing the wheel. She'd say this is just an extension of the respectable functions of motherhood. Women are um, meant to provide guidance, education, and love. No big. We're not making waves here. We're just going to do it on a bigger scale. See, you know, girl, you know, don't you? You know how to get, like, you got to get the little knife blade underneath the edge. And right. That's the way that she did it. It was good. Yeah, it was really good. No, she was extremely good at reading people and um, she's really good at getting her way. <laughs> <laughs> she had many tools in her arsenal for that. The two women first rented rooms at a boarding house and they kind of went out shopping. They were looking for the perfect neighborhood, a neighborhood where they could live among the impoverished and do all their programs that they were just starting to, you know, realize could be a thing. They toured the slums of Chicago. This time, they're not just sightseers on a fun day out, but to see where they'd set up their operation. And one day, they were actually headed somewhere else and traveled down a mostly Italian neighborhood, uh, German, Polish, Russian, Jewish, Irish, French. I mean, there's everybody, but all in their little blocks. This neighborhood centered around Halstead Street. There were little wooden houses that really only stayed up because they were leaning up against each other. Two or three families inside. There were dead cart horses left to decay in the streets. Kids played on top of piles of garbage. No toilets, no running water, very little money, and no hope, really. Sounds great. I will tell you, my people were Germans from Chicago, but they had gotten there 50 years before. I had hoped they had graduated out of this part of town, but maybe not. <laughs> I do not know. And what to her wondering eyes should appear in the middle of all of this filth and chaos but a decrepit and giant mansion? What is happening? 
Well, this thing had been built by a rich speculator before Jane was even born. And the neighborhood had not gentrified like he thought it would. It was a very bad investment. (laughs) As luck would have it, this property, as well as most of the land in the neighborhood, really, had just been inherited by some sort of grandniece of the original builder, Miss Helen Culver, college graduate real estate mogul and social reformer who was willing to deal. The availability for rent, I should say, not buying, of this property probably was the deciding factor in the choice of this neighborhood on Halsted Street. I would say so. At the time that they found it, the bottom floor was being used as a warehouse and the upper floors could be rented out, although there wasn't really much going on up there. The house was run down, but it was still standing and it was right where they wanted it to be. So for $720 a year, which is modern day 17000 Jane got the second floor and a downstairs reception room. Unfortunately, that Sherwood School Desk Manufacturing Company warehouse was uh, occupying the first floor. You can't have everything. No. <laughs> but she spent the equivalent of $120,000 on refurbishment of a house that wasn't even hers. That astonishes me. Plenty of her network had pledged donations, but this was really a leap of faith of her own money. It should be noted, with no surprise, that Jane's stepmother, who had inherited the bulk of Papa's fortune, not only refused to give or even lend Jane any money, but also got after her for the fundamental principle of the project. She said, the classes are separate for a reason, Jane. Yes, Jane was adamant that people are people. So why should it be? (laughs) You and I should get along so awfully. There's a little Depeche Mode for you. We've been trying to get it in all day. (laughs) No, you've been trying to get it in. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Jane, nice women don't have careers. Also, you ruined my son's life by not marrying him. You broke his brain. (laughs) And that's why she doesn't live with Anne anymore. Well, how do people succeed against these family feelings? I just don't know. Steel in their spine, I guess, or scar tissue. Yeah. <laughs> well, and moving far away. Oh, well, that helps. So they started advertising their classes in assorted newspapers around town in different languages. The neighborhood was just baffled as to what was happening. There's a palace emerging out of the dung heap, is what one man called it. The locals were in equal measure intrigued and offended. Once Jane and Ellen had moved in... Some local ne'er-do-wells, this very first thing that happened was they broke a window with a rock. Not a good sign. (laughs) What neighborhood have we moved into? And a man in the street spat right in Jane's face. Yes. What did they think this was? I am wondering, now that I'm thinking about it, if they thought this was a house of negotiable affection. Oh, perhaps. I mean, it was located between a saloon and a funeral home. Fitting for the neighborhood. Yes, perhaps they did think that. That would not be welcome. Or maybe they just also thought the classes should stay separate. Or that maybe this would bring more development and price them out of their neighborhood. Maybe they were worried this was gentrification starting. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, lots of people stopped by to call on the ladies. Maybe the less violent <laughs> people. <laughs> the way you call on a new neighbor, you know, welcome with your eyes, you know, darting all over behind them to check out their stuff. They wanted to see what was happening here exactly. So the nosy Parkers, the gossips, were the best advertisements possible. And the brave and ambitious began to show up to sign up for the classes, including a kindergarten, which opened the very first day with 75 kids on the wait list. (laughs) You guys. It was taught by one of Chicago's debutantes. Young, educated ladies flocked to work at the Halstead Settlement. At last, an outlet for my talent. 
just like Jane thought. Jane always said this project was as much for the givers as for the receivers of assistance. And it took a long time for people to start believing her. There was a sign that was hung over the front door. It says, may you find hope who enter here. And that's not just what you just said. That's not just the people in the neighborhood finding hope, but it's the people that are living there and working there finding hope. They're all walking through the same door. Love it. I do too. And within a few months, the kids of the neighborhood were all about it. There were classes in sewing and art and English and writing. They were segregated by language because they kind of had to be. Everyone, (laughs) at least at first, you had to find a translator. Most of these people didn't speak English. These are mostly first-generation Americans. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that Jane personally gave a little bunch of flowers to each girl to take home each week on the way out. I I mean, it's such an intangible, isn't it? Like, Mm -hmm. here, take a little bit of beauty home as a souvenir. Life does not have to be all dark. Here's a little bunch of marigolds or whatever. I am also laughing when I read that she said, the boys seem to be harder to manage. You think? <laughs> you mean those ruffian boys that broke your window when you first got in there? Yeah, probably. probably she's, she's also like, they track in so much dirt and they spit tobacco everywhere. <laughs> All these newsies, you know, at seven chewing tobacco. Well, within its first two years, a thousand people a week were coming through, adults as well as children, to attend classes or club meetings or lectures from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. each and every day of the week. Every room had something going on. I only mention this because you and I met in an online mom's group, but there were two mother's groups. (laughs) One for stay-at-home moms held in the afternoon and one for working mothers held in the evening. So even that she got right 100 years before, you know? like where you Mm -hmm. have to schedule it when people could come, you know, amazing. It should be noted that as the settlement expanded, it also would eventually include a baby nursery and a daycare, which was a benefit for working mothers too. So it didn't at the beginning, but as they expanded, that was one of the very first things they added. I mean, to tell you, young women got off their factory shifts and came in to argue about poetry with (laughs) each other. There were sports teams and debating clubs for the boot blacks and the meatpacking laborers. Driven young people could take authorized college extension courses in history or Latin or math. The very first playground in the entire city of Chicago, I'm letting that just sit for a minute, was opened on the settlement house grounds. Opening day, you know, there's a little ceremony. They're going to take down the fence and like, whoa, we just discovered the kids of the neighborhood had been so excited about it that they had long since made a tunnel under the fence and they'd been in their plane already. (laughs) There were feet prints everywhere. But I love the reason that all these programs started is because Jane and Ellen were living in the neighborhood and they were getting to know their neighbors and they saw their needs and just figured out a way to help them. It's simple. You see a problem, you fix it. Over the course of the ongoing years, I'm just going to put this in here. Jane and the team added, I'm just going to list these, an art gallery, which was Ellen's actual special project, which she brought to the public schools of Chicago, also um, expanded out into the community. A public kitchen where they held cooking and nutrition classes. There was a coffee house for club meetings, a gymnasium, a swimming pool, an art studio, a music school, a whole theater company, a circulating library, which was very reminiscent of um, when they used to have the, quote, library in their house back in Cedarville when she was growing up. People could just come in and borrow the books that existed on the shelves. Also, they had an employment agency. 
Ultimately, they had a boarding house for single working women called the Jane Club. There was a fund that they would have for, you know, if you had to strike because of your working conditions or perhaps you were between jobs, the Jane Club could take care of you. That reminds me, what is that show? Tom Hanks had to dress like a woman to stay in a boarding house. It wasn't buddies. Yay! Oh my gosh, wait. I just remembered (laughs) something else. Guess the name of the women's hotel that they stayed in. I swear to you it's true. I haven't fact-checked, but I swear to you it's true. It was the Susan B. Anthony Hotel for Women. I believe that. You must have been very young when that show was on. Oh, I oughtn't to have watched it at all. It's so not good. If you go back, (laughs) try to get through 15 minutes of Fantasy Island. Speaking of a TV show, I should not have been watching. (laughs) Also, okay, here's a transition for you. Speaking of cultural non-translation over the decades, I have to say that from here, 2018, there seems to be a look back and some complaints that the project aimed to, I don't know how to put it, knock the foreign off people, ruin their culture, and Applebee's eyes them. Oh, yes. I mean, but they couldn't have seen it at the time. When they know better, they do better. Well, number one, though, I don't know how they can even say that. There were Italian culture nights, German literature nights, people from France that talked about everything from Marie Antoinette to Voltaire. I mean, they had preservation of culture. Cooking classes were by nationality. Anyway, number two, given the prejudices and feelings about foreigners in the culture at large, a bit more assimilation was seen to be a worthy goal for success. I think. I think so. Especially yeah, I for think the so. second generation. Even now, I have to say, first generation does the best they can with the language and the culture. They're just, they're grown ups. It's hard. It's hard to change. Second generations, usually, this is going off Jet's friends too. Second generation and those families are usually completely bilingual. They're the translators between the parents and the school, between the parents and the doctor. Right. Jet has a friend that we have to keep a cell phone on him at all times in case his mom has a question she needs answered. He's the only one in his family that speaks English. But by the third generation, it seems like the children can hardly even talk to their grandparents. That seems to be the pattern happening at this point in Chicago. Also, everybody is slowly assimilating. So you should know this criticisms out there. But at the time, it was seen the whole settlement house as a great balance between respecting people's history and giving them a future. It's making them a society. You know, these people came to the United States for new lives. If they wanted to live exactly the life they were living in Italy, they would have stayed in Italy. So they came to the United States and they had to expect to be assimilated in some manner into a society. And later Jane said this, civilization is a method of living and an attitude of equal respect for all people. And I think she is taking that, the essence of that from the very beginning with all these different ethnic groups, you know, making them a society, making them a civilization. I don't mean to say that the settlement house healed all ills. Though the kids were often in mixed nationality groups and likely, side note, became quite the little linguists, I'd guess, especially on the playground. Ooh, I hope it wasn't bad words. Probably was. There was still prejudice, if not outright hostility between the grown-ups here at the beginning. Though all this place could do was ease that, I'd say, the more you're exposed to the stranger, the more alike you'd realize that you are, mm-hmm. which was kind of the fundamental principle in the first place, the creation of community. In 
addition to hundreds of classes and meetings and clubs held in every room of the house and also, one by one, other buildings, there was really a deeply personal connection that Jane and her partner Ellen and all the other upper-class workers in the settlement were making with the poor residents of their neighborhood. Jane helped deliver a baby, for example. She sat holding hands at deathbeds. She was a nurse for the sick, a conduit of aid for, say, workers who'd been injured on the job, widows with no resources, abandoned wives who were owed child support. So you see, the settlement itself was taking along, opening mines, providing a refuge, just being... You have to admit, very amazing. But don't forget this neighborhood in general, or all, frankly, the poor neighborhoods in Chicago. Just because Jane set up her program doesn't mean Halstead Street stops smelling like garbage. It doesn't make the drinking water clean. It doesn't make the alcoholics stop beating their wives and children. It doesn't stop children from dying. And seeing all of this made Ellen just fall apart. She she felt it all too deeply, like I would, like you would, Susan, right? Like mm-hmm. m- most people would. This is nothing against Ellen. Uh, Ellen is just not a superhero. It's hard not to get personally involved and to come to terms with the fact that whatever you personally do, no matter how hard you work, you can't possibly fix everything. And I think it left her in a state of perpetual despair. But, you know, under the surface, she wasn't like staggering around wearing all black all the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I kept thinking about that because Jane seems to be handling the emotional aspects of this a whole lot better than Ellen did. And I wondered if it was because Ellen hadn't come from as wealthy a background as Jane did. So I wonder if Jane had kind of, I don't want to say this badly, but kind of an ignorant elitist mindset that everything was going to be okay. Does that make any sense at all? I kept wondering how I could handle what she was seeing, and I couldn't. There are people, though, that have the quality, like Jane did, of being able to genuinely care for people in desperate situations without letting it get a hold of her. I have a very recent experience, of course. I liken it to the nurses in the ICU who take care of patients and their families every day. Mm -hmm. Multiple people. They're kind. They want the best for you. And also, they have to insulate themselves from you and your pain, or else they can't help anyone. Mm-hmm. People describe Jane Adams, Miss Adams, it always was, as, quote, impersonally thoughtful and kind with an indescribable magnetism. Could be that she had great training in not absorbing other people's feelings from her upbringing with her stepmother. Oh, that's an interesting thing. See, you gave it a little more thought than I did, I guess. And also, here's another factor. She was known, some say she was notorious, so that's a telling word, for speaking to people in the same respectful way regardless of their station in life. And I'm sorry to say this was not... A usual quality found in the Gilded Age upper classes. You know, the old warning for the dating population, watch how your date treats the waiter. Right. (laughs) You know, and so I think the fact that she all the time treated the lower classes like, you know, well, like the poor is made up of individual humans with thoughts and feelings of their own. Radical. You know, Jane did see them like that. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder if it was something inherent in her, though. Yeah. I don't know. It's admirable, whatever it is. Ellen's more like everybody. So, you know, all the books are like, Ellen just fell apart. And I'm like, sister, 
<laughs> you need to lay off Ellen. Ellen is just a person. Jane's the superhero here. So yeah, and Ellen is the sidekick. Okay. <laughs> Trust me, I am all about the sidekick. I am supportive of the sidekick. I am team sidekick a lot of times. So well, Jane also rarely ever lost her temper. All that practice with her stepmother, I'm guaranteeing you came in handy here. Uh, people called Jane Serene. I think maybe it was the fact that she was finally being useful after so many years of wishing for something to do. She wrote in her autobiography, one is so overpowered by the misery and narrow lives of so large a number of city people that the wonder is that conscientious people can leave it alone. To her, this was a natural way to behave. She wrote in her autobiography also that she was happy to be sustained at the great well of human experience, which sounds fulfilled to me. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. as important to Jane as her project's benefit to the poor, that's what everybody else saw, was the fact that she was enabling other educated women to gain fulfillment for themselves, too. You remember from part one, she'd been very clear that this had been one of her motivations from the beginning. Yeah. And the list of women that had come through Hull House um, and got their start in their professions is astonishing. And I don't even think we can possibly touch on all of them, although I guess we could probably highlight some. Yeah. Well, I had two in particular that I wanted to cover just okay. to show you <laughs> how far Jane's reach goes. So now, honestly, any of these people are probably worthy of their own episode, but we'll just give you a few. Keep in mind, there's more. There's also, by the end of this process, hundreds of settlement houses. So her influence is exponential. Okay. Florence Kelly, who was the daughter of a lawyer who had attended Cornell and had written about the perils of the working class and child labor before she ever got to Jane. She arrived at Hull House, separated from her husband, and used Hull House's platform to continue her work. Research that she did contributed to laws that reduced working hours for women, eliminated child labor, and regulated sweatshops. She was the first chief factory inspector in Chicago. She became a lawyer. She was the president of the National Consumers League, which is this, this is so cool. It was like the original, you know how you have those lists, like if you don't approve of this political statement, don't buy these products or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was exactly that. It was called the white label. And products that had the white label were certified by Florence Kelly's organization as having ethical labor practices. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very excellent. And she was one of the founding members of the NAACP and the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Okay, you know, I made brownies the other day, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm very, whatever, (laughs) these people. Julia Lathrop, number two, another lawyer's daughter, fellow Rockford alum, although she got to go to Vassar. Sorry. She ended up as the first woman on the Illinois State Board of Charities. She improved conditions in mental hospitals. She made sure that female doctors were appointed in female wards. That's super important in this time, I'm telling you. She was the first president of the United States Children's Bureau under President Taft, basically focused on maternal and child welfare, research into health and safety, visiting nurses. She's responsible for the focus on prenatal care and also juvenile justice system reform. I mean, okay. 
<laughs> I know the list of these women goes on and on. And I have several, but I'm just going to pick out a couple that truly impressed me. Alice Hamilton. She had done a lot of research studies through Hull House because she was a postgraduate research scientist, but she couldn't get work in her field. She did a lot on uh, water studies and linking the climate and the conditions in the area to disease. Well, she would go on to become the first woman professor at Harvard, and she was called the founding mother of occupational medicine. Now, this woman could have, like you said before, her own episode, as could Frances Perkins. Frances Perkins would go on to be the first woman appointed to the U.S. cabinet, and we can thank her for her work establishing Social Security, the minimum wage, overtime, and child labor laws. And all of that work started at Hull House. It's just amazing what, given the opportunity, these women, what they could do with their lives. Jane and her crew had their fingers in a lot of pies. Jane and her crew changed the world. Racism, child labor, drug abuse research, overcrowding of cities, infant mortality, tracking the spread of typhoid fever, groundbreaking efforts into understanding the problems facing large cities. So back to our timeline. I mean, I don't want to diminish anyone we hadn't mentioned. We can't go into the hundreds. I think I can say hundreds of workers for whom this settlement house and the others inspired by it went on to do great things with their lives. So uh, the fact that we didn't mention some one is in no way our diminishment of their work. Believe me, we are in awe of what happened just based on one person's idea. You know, it's just amazing. <laughs> At the age of 30, Jane met a significant figure in her life. One day, the woman who had been teaching the kindergarten since the beginning, the kindergarten that had the 70 person wait list, that is amazing. That's like my, ch <laughs> my child's school right now. Um, she brought a friend along, one Mary Rose Smith, who was the daughter of a wealthy paper manufacturer. And she began contributing cash and time to the project, but more importantly, became Jane's companion. What does that mean? There's a range of options to choose from. One of my sources referred to Mary as Jane's, quote, wife. Mm -hmm. Other historians are running around flapping their hands, panicked by this. It's hard to separate what was really romantic Victorian friendship from modern views of homosexuality. <laughs> okay, well, so we've got our ends of the spectrum there. The The passion was certainly there. In letters, Jane wrote, quote, I feel a rush of emotion when I think of you, or I long for you all the time. Your friendship has transformed my future. And so those were the letters Jane did not burn. And fine. I have to tell you, I personally, myself, Becky Graham only, have no problem accepting that Jane and Mary were in a girlfriend situation. People are strangely head up and emotional about this issue one way or another. I'm not sure why it's important for us to know 100% what Jane's sex life was. I um... Well, I will say this. It is very important for the lesbian community to embrace it because it gives young girls who are lesbians a role model in society to say, this has always been around, regardless of what, you know, some people in your life might be saying. It's not something brand new. Back in this era, they were called Boston marriages. It was situations where two women could live together. Society approved of it. You know, they combined resources. They gave each other emotional support. They lived under the same roof and they had the same support system that a married couple would. Now, did they have the sexual part? I don't know. It's This is an era where we don't talk about those things one way or the other, even if it was a heterosexual marriage. So um, it's not important to me, but I'm a heterosexual woman. I believe it's important to the lesbian community and the LGBTQ community in large. Well, so those of you who have read 
not seen. I mean, see fried green tomatoes. That's fine. But when you read fried green tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, it's Iggy Threadgood and Ruth. It's exactly the same. Like the intimations are there strongly that it's a romantic relationship, but there's no overt commentary. You know what I mean? So uh, it's not unusual to leave that in the realm of probability. I will tell you the museum itself, Whole House Museum, was in a swivet about their signage of a portrait of Mary Rose Smith. They weren't sure how to characterize her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And the th- okay. You want another piece of evidence? That portrait, when Jane traveled later in her life without Mary, she would haul this portrait around with her. I mean, I love you, Beckett, but I don't think I would take your portrait anywhere. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's another check mark for the yeah, probably. Well, it seems like later when society began to turn its gimlet eye on these ladies, use that in a sense today. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, society got a little testier as time went on. And later in our story, Jane was actually trying to encourage Mary to marry a man. Get out of this scandal. Save yourself. They even separated for a while. But once they were reunited, you can forget that. You know, we're real. Uh-huh. That's why I, Beckett, am coming down on the side of true love. They they were together for 40 years. Well, when you say something like, and this is in a letter that was saved, you know, like we'd said earlier, the, a lot of the letters had been destroyed on Jane's death because she felt they were too personal. So these are the ones that aren't too personal. They said things like, I'm yours till death. Mm-hmm. It looks like a duck. <laughs> That's true. So let us leave Mary on her pedestal. Yes, she does belong on her pedestal because although Mary doesn't do in her life a lot of things that some of these other women do, her gift is supporting Jane while Jane supports the community. And so her role in Hull House is huge, even though her name isn't known for any particularly great social reforms. She was the support system. I'm also thinking it was super awkward. Just as a side note, Ellen's still in the house. Mm. And Ellen was kind of the first possibility as to life partner. She's still there. That seems very awkward to me. Anyway, (laughs) turning our attention back um, from Real Housewives of Whole House back to the settlement house. (laughs) That is really Luckily, Jane had made a deal with their landlady to have the whole house now. No more furniture factory downstairs. Not sure if we talked about that. Uh, They had the house free of rent for four years. And that is a significant savings. And as a gesture of thanks for this, the settlement was renamed officially Hull House after the landlady's ancestor, Charles Hull, who had built the house in the first place. Not the project or the settlement. We can't say anymore, but Hull House now officially. Alliteration's been better for branding anyway. Ask Susan. (laughs) Happy, happy Hull House. Oh, dear. (laughs) I bet you approve of uh, superheroes like Clark Kent, Peter Parker. Yes. There's probably a lot more, but I am not that girl. (laughs) Um, Financially, Jane had a problem. Despite good press, donations, and basic goodwill all over the place, Whole House was operating at a deficit. Jane made up the difference for years out of her own money, and no one ever knew. That would be bad publicity. That would be an admission of failure. Year by year, this idea that she had unlimited inherited funds, like a safety net in that way, should leave your mind. She is depleting her capital every year by thousands of 1890s dollars. Oh, yeah. That first year alone, she paid 50 
8% of all Hull House expenses, which was like four times her annual income from her inheritance. That's a lot. She'd been so successful in her endeavors there that she really had to protect it at all costs. And I think she must have known what she was doing because she began to be in demand on a larger stage. Public speaking outside Chicago was beginning to make her into a household name. And it wasn't just philosophy that made her accept these invitations. She secretly needed the money, Mm -hmm. you know, but we kept that part all inside. And even by contemporary standards, she really she was making about 25 bucks per speech, which is about $800, which if you've ever hired a speaker, is a pretty cheap rate, I would think. And then it could be that she didn't know what speakers charged and people cheaped her out Mm -hmm, on, mm -hmm. on the offer, which is certainly something that beginning speakers do all the time, too. So I wouldn't necessarily read too much into the fact that they didn't. They'll pay as little as they can. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's so very true. The settlement house movement is starting to kick off. In the first year that Hull House was open, there was six new settlement houses across the United States. Over the next seven years, there was 100 more. And 20 years after that, the 20 years of Hull House, there was another 400 more settlement houses across the U.S. So the information that she has, being the head of the most successful settlement house, is very valuable to these people who are starting their own across the country. And that's what she went to talk about. I think it's time to take a little break. And when we come back, we will explore what happens in level two. And we're back. Okay. At Whole House, the Working People's Social Science Club had been meeting there for a couple of years. Florence Kelly was already a socialist. We didn't really talk about that. (laughs) But she knew all about it. But Jane was just fascinated to learn how working life went from the side of the workers. She'd never really thought about that exactly. It was a serious education for most of the upper class women there. And Jane made a point of at least dropping by to stand in the back and listen whenever she could. In Chicago and in America and probably in the world, frankly, wages were kept low. So women and children and a family were forced to work Just to survive, workers were often laid off with no notice. Workplace injuries, well, too bad, so sad. And children were required to work at a very young age. You could have toddlers in a sewing factory, you know, pulling thread. So if they're there working, they're not getting educated. I've seen some pictures of three and four-year-old oyster shuckers that stood barefoot in ice water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Heartbreaking. And then when they cried, they would get a slap in the face. So... That's the level we have right now. Mm -hmm. Well, Jane asked around and invited a woman who was a bindery worker. Now, again, she had grown up in a family that was pretty well off. But due to the death of her father, she had to go to work in a factory. So she had had some education, um, invited this lady to come talk to her about unions. And at first, this person is all like, sure, right, like you care. Because at this time, the word union meant to the upper classes 
riotous, ungrateful mob to most mm-hmm. of Jane's class. But we know Jane better than that. Not only did she listen, she asked, now, what can we do together to help the girls in your trade? It was eye-opening and shocking to get mm-hmm. this reach-over-the-aisle attitude. For real? You know, she'd come to this meeting with a giant chip on her shoulder and left with meeting space for her binder reunion, printing and distribution of flyers, and an invitation to stay for a few weeks to talk more about this. Now, it doesn't seem unlikely to us that understanding the plight of the poor would naturally lead to talk of unions, but believe me, it was radical for the time. Unheard of. Mm-hmm. On a basic person-to-person level that goes along with this, Jane remembered a couple of incidents that began to really energize her, I guess, anger about the state of affairs for workers in Chicago. Once during a children's party, Jane offered these little girls some candy and they were like repelled. Can't stand the stuff, miss. Not after being in it up to our elbows 14 hours a day in the candy factory. No, (laughs) thank you. I would rather never see candy again. Little children slaving away their whole childhoods working in factories. And I'm sure she must have known that in the abstract. Maybe the fact that it was a candy factory made it more vivid. Like, this is against nature. (laughs) You know, a kid who hates candy. Uh, You know, I don't know if that's what it was. Or if it's the fact that maybe she knew these little girls personally. You know, it's always when you know it personally, it makes a difference, I think. You know, when you think of how she was raised, that makes this even a greater thing that she's able to understand, you know, the work situation from the worker's point of view. Her father, who she idolized, was kind of one of those pull yourself up by your bootstraps guys. People are poor because they let themselves be poor. They can work harder. That's how she was raised. You know, her father was in management. That's deeply ingrained in her. So I give her even more uh, credit for being able to overcome that because this idol in her head and to overcome his words. That's a big deal. That was a pretty common, probably still is, common philosophy among the upper classes that the poor are poor because they choose to be poor. Mm -hmm. Oh, I believe it to be very prevalent in today's society as well. So um, obviously, Jane and Beckett do not think that's true. Or Susan. Let's get that. I want to slide myself in there. So there is a picture by Lewis Hines. There's a lot of them, actually. There's a specific photo that I want to try to put. If not due to copyright on our website, I would like to at least put that on the Pinterest. There's a little girl at what looks like a silk mill looking out the window that kind of exemplifies what I think about the pathos of little children wasting their childhoods in factories. So uh, I'll at least put it on the Pinterest if I can. The second incident that Jane called to mind was all these little neighborhood boys kept getting injured at the same machine at the same factory because it didn't have a safety guard on it. Have you seen those pictures of barefoot kids standing in the machinery? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it killed this last one. And Jane took off to have words with the factory owners about this, just sure they'd be horrified at how their managers were running the place. But surprise, surprise, their reaction was like, there's a hundred more kids where that one came from. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where her innocence about this kind of cruelty came from. Probably the same place Marie Antoinette's did. She'd been insulated by money. And the cruelty was never shown to women of her class. She said in a later writing, a person who comes to live in a settlement house convinced they know all about working people must assume the best teacher of life is life 
itself. That is a philosophy that her father would not have appreciated. Class division was so strict, so accepted even, and I'm sort of surprised with all the socialist meetings going on at Whole House, all the growing (laughs) interest in the rights of workers. I mean, Jane herself mediated a women's worker strike at the Star Knitting Works that she did not get more pushback than she did. I will tell you, (laughs) there was an able assist right at the right time, an extraordinarily rich woman, one of the richest women in Chicago with the name of Louise Bone who was already giving $15,000 a year, showed up with her presence and her fur coat to run one of the clubs out of the first floor. All of these conservatives would say, oh, these anarchist socialists over there at Whole House, and then be like, oh, wait, Mrs. Top Lofty Eminent, as Emily Post would say, is on board, huh, recalibrating. That was invaluable assistance socially. Jane was slowly starting to realize that the power of the poor to change their fate was probably their sheer numbers, their power to vote, which of course women could not yet do. It was a poser, which made working women the most powerless of all, really. She, Florence Kelly, and the powerful and large Chicago Women's Club we talked about during the first half of this episode, made up of women from all strata of society, began to lobby the state legislature to pass a sweatshop reform bill. And so effective were their efforts, their speaking engagements, their publicity, that a major clothing manufacturer, who of course employed four-year-old children to sew on buttons, offered Jane $50,000 to lay off. That's $50,893. Mm-hmm. I'm being offered a bribe. Yeah, and that's a big bribe. And that's when you know it's working, sister. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But she felt dirty. Like, how dare they think that I'm a kind of person? Well, that's their only perspective. Money will pay for everything. Right. Um, I, I don't know why she felt so bad about that. Well, the Workshop and Factory Act, which is the official name of the sweatshop bill, that's not as attractive, it passed almost unanimously at the state legislature. No children under 14 could be in factories. Women and teens could only work an eight-hour day. And Fine, that's okay. There's been laws like this before, said the factory owners. Like, oh, we'll just avoid those two, just like before. Oh, no. There were factory inspectors to check this was happening. Now the factory inspectors have the power to seize goods from companies who violated the rules. So if you violate these rules, we will take all your equipment. Oh, crap. That's a big one. And who was the first official inspector? The big boss? Jane's co-worker, Florence Kelly, one of the women we talked about before. I just love how Whole House became a springboard for all these other achievements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. It's one of my favorite things about the whole thing. I mean, you know, from a woman's perspective, this is amazing. This is an amazing opportunity. And they just did it because they wanted to. And they just found a need and followed it. Let's get it changed. Well, it's the year 1893, and we're in Chicago. (laughs) So as the summer arrives, so does our favorite, the Columbian Exposition. Annie Oakley's there with Buffalo Bill's (laughs) Wild West show. Helen Keller's hanging out with Mark Twain down the hall there. (laughs) Anyone who is alive has made it there at some point, I think. I'm sure you won't be surprised exactly that social reform didn't have a giant presence There's no booth, really. No, no. I knew what was going on in in the world and in Chicago when the fair opened. But for some reason in my head, they were two separate things. You know, the fair, it's so glittering and beautiful. And the white city and all this innovation that's coming in and all these people that are coming through. It's so Gilded Age. Here's the glittering white city in the World's Fair. And behind it is poverty. In 1893, there is a depression. And so all the people behind the World's Fair, all the people who built the World's Fair are all impoverished. It's just, it 
never like struck in my head that these things were juxtaposed at this particular time in history. For some reason, it clicked for me here. Well, it was all that PBR. PBR was was introduced at the World's Fair, Ferris wheel, electric lights. There were an awful lot of distractions for the average Joe or Susan. Don't look behind the curtain. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you know, the fair is right in Jane's backyard. And of course, she has to get involved. Um, She was the chair of the Women's Committee and coordinated programs involving, of course, the Settlement House movement. There was a three-day organization of speakers that she helped coordinate and was a part of. There was a major series of what was called Women's Congresses in what is now the Chicago Art Institute building. It's kind of a parallel, you know, conclave featuring such speakers as Susan B. Anthony, Victoria Woodhull, and of course, Jane Addams and other members of Hull House. But the big memory for Jane this year was not the fair. Actually, it was a series of events that began when that major national economic depression happened because it brought the people in the city of Chicago crashing down around Jane's ears. Hull House was not usually in the business of what was called relief, you know, your standard charity, soup kitchen, bundle of clothes kind of place. But the acute nature of the crisis and the sheer volume of people crowding in to beg for help meant that whole house was just hemorrhaging money. We can't not help, said Jane, but she knew this was A, a Band-Aid, and B, couldn't last forever. The money situation was so dicey. As workers were laid off throughout the city or asked to take pay cuts, which I love, the guys at the top never took pay cuts. (laughs) And Uh, still don't. Yeah, I was like, surprise level zero. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Labor uprising started hitting the news. You know, the nice suburbanites already thought workers were this simmering mob in good times. And now with just grievances, they became, I don't know, terrifying monsters intent on, you know, destroying the world. Here's one in particular, the Pullman Corporation. They're the ones that make the fancy sleeper cars for trains. They had laid off a large amount of workers. And they cut all the survivors' pay by 30%. One day, you're making, you know, say $10 a week and barely making it. And the next day, wham, $7 a week. Not only that. Pullman employees lived in a designed community, much like some Disney employees do today, or at least did. Uh Pullman owned the grocery stores. Pullman owned the clothing stores. Pullman owned the workers' houses for which they had to pay rent. And did the prices go down on these commodities to match the wage reductions? No, they did not. Can you? That is dastardly. I know. And actually, I grew up in a town that was built like this around uh, fabric mills. They had the mills and they had the houses and the management lived in the bigger houses. And then the workers lived in smaller houses all in the area. And they all built, you know, the grocery stores and all the utilities and stuff all came through the um, it's, it was very common at this time of, you know, in history. Actually, my point. (laughs) So there is a history of tied cottages. You know, you give the gardener a cottage and then if you fire the gardener or he dies, his family is booted. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened with factory workers, too. Well, after a further wage reduction, followed by a refusal to negotiate on rents or anything, 5,000 workers walked out on their jobs. Other unions joined them. And when the railroads fired workers who had struck, striked, Mm. Right. <laughs> question mark. Really big question mark. <laughs> um, well, whole train crews quit in solidarity and it brought railroad traffic to a halt all over the country. The whole supply chain. There's not a whole lot of overland trucking during this time period. Uh-uh. So um, we're looking at a massive disruption to the economy. 
except the mail. I thought this was great. The big boss said, nope, mail's federal. We don't want to get into all that. Keep delivering the mail. (laughs) Well, it didn't help because federal troops had to be sent anyway, because when Mr. Pullman hired scabs, which is what they call workers that cross the picket line, to work the railroads, riots broke out in a lot of places. Train cars pushed over, set on fire, tracks pulled up, railroad offices destroyed. It was a nationwide crisis. Well, I wonder what happens when you exploit people and then treat them like dirt. See French Revolution. (laughs) See a lot of revolution. Oh, yes. Fictional and factual. I do believe that is the entire plot of the Hunger Games series is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, Jane was asked to be part of the arbitration committee, which was six people that were brought in to try and act as go-betweens between management and the employees. Jane knew George Pullman. He had actually contributed to Hull House. She went in with like, okay, this is going to work. You know, I know this guy, but it didn't. (laughs) Yeah, he was pretty dug in. His viewpoint was, how dare those ungrateful so-and-sos rise up against, it was very paternalistic, rise up against, I built them houses. I provided jobs for them. And this is how my children repay me. It was like that kind of thing. Like he was was indignant that they dared question his judgment. And see, he doesn't see them as people with feelings. Jane is in a unique position here because she can see it from both sides. She knows Pullman socially. I don't think she has enough time to convince a guy like this. You know, he has to be exposed a long time. I I don't think this whole conversation was ever going to work. In the midst of all this, Jane's eldest sister, Mary, her surrogate mother was dying. Uh, Mary had had cancer and Jane had arranged for Mary to be sent to a hospital in Wisconsin from Illinois, where the family lived, where Mary's children and husband were. But when Mary took a turn, the family was called for and they couldn't get to Mary. So only Jane could. And only Jane was given a private rail car during a rail strike to go up and visit her sister and be with her sister as she passed away. The final day, I I kept reading this and it just broke my heart. Mary kept asking, where's my family? Where's my family? And Jane's, you know, holding her hand saying, they're going to be here, knowing full well that they weren't going to be able to get there before Mary died and they didn't make it. Here's a very, very short synopsis of what happened. After all the riots, $80 million in damages, tens of deaths, etc., Um, A Supreme Court decision that did not favor the leader of the strikers. Ultimately, it was found during President Grover Cleveland's administration that the paternalistic nature of the Pullman town and companies in general were un-American and not conducive to the growth of America. And six days after this strike was concluded and all the business was dusted off of your hands, President Grover Cleveland designated a national holiday, Labor Day. So you see, we all experience a direct result of the Pullman strike. For some of us, of course, it might just be hot dogs and hamburgers, but it is a holiday that honors the workers of America. Based on a strike that Jane Adams helped to mediate. Jane arranged for her niece and nephews, the children of her sister Mary, who had just died, to attend assorted boarding schools, hither and yon. But then, as she was walking around the neighborhood, she was kind of struck with this crippling guilt. I just send the children I'm responsible for to nice, safe places without thinking about it. And everywhere around me are mothers with the same feelings as mine, who are powerless to save their children from typhoid or starvation or squalor. 
And Jane saw another quest. She felt the same feeling of inevitability plus excitement that she did when she thought about opening Hull House. I and friends are going to clean up the neighborhood itself, the whole dang city, if I have to, so the poor are going to have another advantage on their side, on their road to self-improvement. It doesn't help if the children have fresh milk if it's full of dirt. It doesn't help if the mother cleans the house and typhoid comes in through the window. So (laughs) she needed to give them some more support. And guess what she found? Corruption in 19th century politics in Chicago? What? The Windy City. Lots of people think that it's because of the winds. And a lot more people believe that it's because of the winds of politicians, the hot air that they're blowing. It popped up originally in that context during the negotiations for the World's Fair between New York and Chicago. They were battling it out. And all the politicians of Chicago were just blowing hot air. And the newspaper said, the Windy City. But predating that by about 50 years, the Windy City was actually used as a term in the papers to talk about the wind and to talk about a tornado that had hit the city. So as I always thought it was the politicians. Yeah, that's what I learned. Today I learned. <laughs> it's kind of one of those things that there's just a double meaning for it, which makes it even a more uh, beautiful phrase, I guess. Well, this is an era of pay to play, I will tell you. And I'm sorry to say that the local alderman had given a friend the lucrative trash contract. This is just one example. Uh, and he just pocketed the money without bothering to, you know, pick up any trash. Thus, the rotting piles of garbage everywhere. This did not take a lot of detective work. This was very open. She tried to get the contract herself when it came up, you know, to haul it out for real. But her offer was, quote, somehow lost. Mm. But in the resulting publicity from all of this, the mayor, the Republican mayor, remember, 1890s Republican is 2018 Democrat. I must find the link to that again. The party switched platforms. Anyway, Mm -hmm. between Lincoln and Kennedy. Anyway, the the Republican mayor, probably despite the Democratic machine, appointed Jane the garbage inspector. (laughs) It's a real job and had a real salary. And danged if she didn't follow the crews around with maps and notes and visits to a judge and citations and got this mess in order. She was only there for a month and a half before she passed the job to another member of Whole House. It was good publicity for her. Too bad the crooked politician managed to grab it back from them later. She fought against this guy. His name is Powers. He was so corrupt. For like five years, acutely. Mm-hmm. She wanted to topple him and his regime and his hold on power. And I have to tell you, corruption in Chicago and toppling powers took a long time. I mean, decades. Yeah, the whole story of Johnny Powers is just a study in the corruption of Chicago at the time. He was an immigrant. He was an Irish immigrant who had won on the I'm one of you people platform. And then he turned his intelligence into a series of schemes to line his pocket. And he would do things for his community, like pay for a funeral here and give so-and-so a job and say, look how magnanimous I am. And When in reality, he wasn't, but he just kept being elected over and over and over again (laughs) because women couldn't vote. (laughs) That's what I say. That's just Susan Vollenweider. Well, 
And I also think for the actual voters, they just couldn't see the big picture. And I think that's true today. What you might see is the fact that Johnny Powers paid for your cousin's funeral, but you don't understand that Johnny Powers is sort of responsible for him dying in the first place because his people didn't pick up the garbage, typhoid ran rampant, and thus he died. So I just think maybe they weren't connecting his and nefarious behavior with their own lives in a way that maybe education would have helped. I don't know that women themselves voting would have caused any difference unless they were also able to connect the dots. So Jane realized she was not going to win this particular fight. So she had to go around him. Basically, she had a successories moment. Remember successories? I want the courage to change what I can, the strength to bear what I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. I always think I need a cat hanging off a branch. (laughs) Hang in there. Just hang in there. Yeah, right. (laughs) Onward and upward. It was time for society to pitch in. She began writing articles for prominent publications on education, prison reform, political reform, unions, workers' rights, everything she could think of that needed to change in society at large. And that way, she'd be able to change the neighborhood around Whole House. And the way the new 100 or so settlement houses inspired by hers were changing their own communities. Action is the only medium of expression for one's ethics, she said. She was just the hero of this whole movement. Mm -hmm. Everyone idolized her. Somebody from the New York Henry Street settlement, which is another very famous one that is still in existence, wrote to her, one small group has a deeper desire than ever to press its service into and for a fairer society for having touched you. I want you to know that we want to be good. And like children, we are looking up to you for guidance. So she's Joan of Arc. (laughs) She took these articles, she turned them into speeches and took them all over this country and all over to England where she returned the favor for inspiring her work by firing up optimism and drive in the hearts of anyone who heard her. She was like the best TED Talk you ever saw. People everywhere could not stop talking about her. She would show up for speeches and her clothes were just a mess. And Mary would have to rearrange her clothes before she went up to the podium because her slip was showing. And Jane would just say, oh, never mind. I'm only going to do a speech. Like, no big deal. (laughs) Her very last major Chicago project was assisting Florence Kelly's team to create the Cook County Juvenile Court System. And the rest of Whole House stepped in to provide practical matters like they did housing, schooling, and transportation. The concept of treating juvenile offenders less harshly than adults was a novel concept, which over the next couple of decades became standard practice. Do you hear all that rumbling? That's the groundbreaking of Jane Addams. (laughs) Well, buckle up, kids, because from now, her life goes national and then international. I think it's time after level two to take a little break. And when we come back, we will see what happens in level three.
And we're back. It is time to go national and international. It is. And it wasn't all work and no play. Jane and Mary took a side trip to Russia where they met with Leo Tolstoy. Back when Jane was still kind of floundering in her life, trying to find her purpose, she had read Tolstoy's War and Peace. She felt like her life sort of mirrored his. He believed that the Russian upper and ruling classes mistreated the lower ones. And also, although he was from a wealthy family, he began to live like a peasant and live with the lower classes and live like the lower classes. Classes. He worked in the field. He dressed and ate like the working class man. He made his own boots. So Jane was very excited to meet him. And Tolstoy was on brand, but he wasn't what she expected. He criticized her clothing. She had a puffy sleeve dress on that had enough fabric for a little girl's dress. And he thought that Jane looked too upper class to be effective with her neighbors. Well, he basically <laughs> called her, although this word wouldn't be popular for some years, he called her a poser. A poser. I mean, oh, how crushing. So that was a bummer. That was a little bit of, hmm, you know, like when you go to Comic-Con and the guy's not very nice to you or whatever. <laughs> well, I think it also gave her an opportunity to do some soul searching to see where she really, you know, she had idolized him and put him on this pedestal and she had to decide how she really was, not how Tolstoy was. In a hard way, it was probably a good thing. I don't think she changed the way she was. I mean, even that night after this conversation, she went and had the fancy dinner while he ate porridge and black bread. <laughs> so I'm I'm mixed on this one. I don't know that it was horrible, but I don't know that it was a great thing either. Maybe eating the fancy dinner was as close as a refined woman of the Gilded Age could get to literally putting up the bad finger. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. So back to some more accomplishments. Let's bag that guy. Whatever. Uh, at 49, she was part of the founding committee for the creation of the NAACP. You don't really connect people. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois, sure. Jane Adams, you don't really, that doesn't rise to the top of your mind. So that's a good thing. And then at 50, Jane published a memoir called 20 Years at Whole House. Not her first book by the way. Over the course of her life, she would write or co-author, I want to say, 12 books and over 500 articles. If you want to feel not accomplished, just saying, I'm not worthy. Uh, you know who else seems to be ringing a lot out of the average day? Kristen Bell. Oh. Have you noticed she's got this whole new series called Momsplaining? She's got the mm -hmm. good play. She's on all these commercials. I'm like, what am I doing with my hours? <laughs> That's true. I don't know. I'm surrounded by people like that. And I never think I'm accomplished at all. Although this is me justifying Jane's work. Well, a lot of her books were her speeches that she just collected by subject. Oh, you're pointing to recycling. <laughs> Ooh, how innovative of her. Well, she became vice president of the National American Woman Suffrage Association the year after her memoir was published. And I found it sort of illuminating that Jane felt that women should have the vote because women's natural goodness had the power to change the world for the better. Whereas, if you recall, Louisa May Alcott thought they should have it because they're people. Mm -hmm. period. Uh, Louisa didn't feel the need to put women folk on a pedestal. Although, you know, Jane's views did evolve a little over time in a famous speech that she gave called Why Women Should Vote. She did spend a lot of time connecting the traditional roles of women 
education, children in the home, culture, and explaining how women needed to influence the greater community with her vote in order to be able to better fulfill her domestic duties. It's the whole, you know, you need the garbage gone so that your children don't get typhoid kind of thing. Uh Um, Uh It was the same kind of soft sell stuff she'd used when she was starting Whole House. If you recall, oh, we are just providing the functions of motherhood. I think that every single suffragist had a different take on why they were standing there. You know, it's all a little bit different. The ultimate goal is the same, but the (laughs) reasons are all all personal. Well, she this is a quote from the speech. Public spirited women who wish to have the ballot do not wish to take over men's affairs. They simply wish an opportunity to do their own work, which is constantly being overlooked and slighted in our political institutions. So I guess that is to say changing the city will change my house. And that's why I'm here. (laughs) And it will get Johnny Powers out of office. (laughs) Which doesn't happen until like the 1920s. I mean, he's there. He's ingrained. He's going to be a thorn in her side this whole time. So to preserve the home, women should have the vote. That was her position. She had an amazing platform, by the way, to spread this message. Jane was, at this point, maybe the most famous woman in America on a national level. Uh, Former president Theodore Roosevelt was going to try for a third term, this time under the Progressive Party banner. And during an event in the year 1912, Jane was the person that seconded his nomination for president. How cool is that? The first woman (laughs) ever to do so to a cheering crowd. Now, he didn't win. He was the only third party candidate in the era of R versus D, if you know what I mean, to ever get second place in the contest. Like, he did not come in last. That's the only time that's ever happened. <laughs> Jean wasn't doing everything just so that she could be, a, you know, this instrument for change. She was, like Tolstoy, willing to stand up for what she believed, even if it cost her dollars in her pocket. One time there was a family of a Russian Jewish man in Chicago who had been arrested for writing progressive anti-government opinions in his paper. The family asked Jane to visit him in jail to make sure that he was okay. And Jane, with an entourage of 16 policemen, because this old guy was so dangerous, quotes, quotes, went to visit him. And when the man was released, not because of Jane, but because there was no crime committed, public opinion opinion for her support of this anarchist. She took a hit. She took a hit, not only in the opinion area, but also in the financial. His checkbooks started to close a little bit, but it was what she believed in. She went in knowing that was going to happen, and she it was true to what happened. Even a year later, she spoke at a funeral of a former Illinois governor who had worked with Jane on children's and women's labor laws, but whose reputation among wealthy factory owners and their friends obviously wasn't so great. And again, supporting this man, even in his death, um, she took a hit again because the upper classes who were supporting Hull House were also the manufacturing owners who had been affected by these changes. So she was, I, I don't know, I was really proud of her for standing up for what she believed and staying on brand. I mean, for the rest of her life, even though there, she's going to take more hits like this. When World War One, obviously just called at this point the Great War until we get to World War Two, because that would make no sense. <laughs> uh, when it broke out in Europe, Jane came out strongly against America getting involved in this war. Now, she was not alone, even at the top. 
president of the United States, Wilson tried to keep the United States out of the actual conflict, though it must be said that the United States saw no trouble or conflict of interest in supplying one side with materials. So how neutral were we? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, Jane was elected chairman of the Women's Peace Party, whose mission it was, quote, to wage a woman's war against war. It was, it had a humanitarian angle and a women's suffrage platform, perfect for Jane, perfect for her reputation. The founding convention that she chaired also approved what they called a program for constructive peace. And they demanded that the government called a conference of neutral nations to talk to, you know, basically to go to arbitration. And also they called for peace based on no transfers of territory without the vote of the people in those territories. And no fines should be assessed after the war and no treaties should be established without the people voting. So that was like kind of like, woo, you're expecting a lot. They were very, very, very intent on representative government affecting how war was conducted or not conducted. I think it was just too much for people who just want to be like, you're bad. We're going to war. <laughs> they, they like expected a lot. I think. Yeah. Well, you got to expect a lot to That's get true. something. I guess it's better to aim high and miss than aim low and hit. Right. As president of the Women's Peace Party, Jane Addams was asked to preside over an international convention for peace at The Hague in the Netherlands, another neutral country. But the water was full of German mines. It was kind of brave to go there at all. 3,200 people attended this three-day convention, of which Jane Addams was the chair. It had a similar platform to the American women's platform, but also called for mediation from neutral countries in order to work toward a permanent peace for the entire world. After the meeting, Jane and company toured battlefields and spoke to soldiers of many nations as they were representatives of neutral countries. But oh no, something happened. During a speech she gave at Carnegie Hall after she came back, Jane made kind of an offhand remark. And I'm sure she meant, like, even the soldiers don't understand what they're fighting for. And you know World War I is just that way. I still don't know what the point was, you know? Mm -hmm. But what she said out loud was, the soldiers in every country I visited need stimulants like liquor or dope before they could bear to fight at all. And this comment went viral in the worst way. Viral venom. I would call it. Yeah, this is another one of those major hits she took. You know, on Twitter, somebody miss says something, it's taken out of context, or they choose the wrong words. Boom. Same thing happened to Jane. I, that just blew my mind. The parallels between time then and time now in this story were just... I, I don't think saddened me almost. Well, that just goes to say, you know, the whole point of our podcast is people are the same people. It's just mm -hmm. that, you know, the circumstances around them are sometimes different. So right. misspeaking goes throughout the history of everyone <laughs> everywhere. Excellent well, point. so the point of society was how dare you question the bravery of a man who is risking his life for his country, even though like, I, you know. I'm not 100% sure that's what she meant at all. I think she meant, like, what is this war even? No one gets it. Mm -hmm. Like, can we just not, can we just have cooler heads prevailing and look at the situation realistically when even the men in the middle of the conflict don't understand what they're fighting for? Why should we be having this war? That's just mm -hmm. not how it came out. So before this speech... I mean, it was newspaper headlines the next day. Before this speech, she couldn't be heard for all the applause at the beginning of her speeches. You know, like she had to wait a long time for it to die down before she could even talk. After this speech, she would speak 
And people would get up and leave. Even the president of the country called her an ass. It was too much. It was too much for her. And it shook her to her core. She felt betrayed, as she should, really. The chronic bad health that had affected her since childhood at moments of stress really hit her from now on. She never really 100% recovered. She had more classic stress, headache, backache, fatigue than almost anyone I have ever heard of in times of stress. Well, she also had, you know, from childhood, she had physical issues, especially with her back. So I'm wondering if those are just starting to, you know, be exacerbated as her whole body is getting older. It happens to all of us, right? But when you run as hard as she did for this huge chunk of her life, it's going to hit even harder. At the end of the war, after she kind of, you know, bolt hold it up, she came out with plenty of others. I just don't want you to think she's just waving her little flag alone on a, you know, stick or whatever. <laughs> the Treaty of Versailles, the treaty that ended World War I, was condemned sort of widely. Many said that it was economically too harsh on Germany and, put your flashlight on this sentence, might lead to social unrest in Germany for decades and therefore another war. You sometimes have to listen to the Cassandras because they are correct. <laughs> Yeah. So right after World War One, with all the liberty cabbage instead of sauerkraut and all of the giant prejudice against Germans and communists and the other, there was a red scare all over the world. But specifically in America, labor unions were considered to be very communist. Well, Jane Addams, that person that said that thing, was very labor union. So she must be a communist. She's subversive. She's suspect. And she was called in a newspaper article, and I quote, the most dangerous and powerful woman in America. Jeez, people. <laughs> yeah, she was so dangerous that she was put under uh, surveillance by the Department of Justice because they felt that she was too much of a communist and a socialist and, you know, bought into too much Bolshevism. That's how dangerous they thought she was, like official dangerous. In 1920, she was instrumental in the founding of the ACLU, you know, goes along with her labor work. But for most of the 1920s, she was either out of the country or in she and Mary's country house in Maine. I think the betrayal hit her very, very hard. And after a lifetime of work and self-sacrifice to have this be the third act, it was almost inconceivable, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I'm glad that they had that place in Maine, you know, to escape to. It's beautiful up there. It was in Bar Harbor. I'll put some pictures. It's gorgeous. You know, my husband has chosen to go uh, work on a lobster boat uh, for a few days. In what month? In Maine, in this month. And most of the lobster, most of the lobster boats have closed down. They closed down in October, but there's one guy that goes out through December, weather permitting. Mm -hmm. And he's like, do you expect to be paid for your work? And Chris Graham is like, I thought I would pay you. And the guy's like, well, let's neither of us pay each other. And that's fine. I'll just give you some lobsters. <laughs> I'm like, only Chris Graham can remotely make that kind of a friend. <laughs> make it work. Oh, he's never going to want lobster anywhere else. We used to do that. Like the lobster boats would come in when I was in New England and Maine. And we just chase them down in the dinghy and buy the lobster right off the boat. It's the best. I remember my friend Heather apologizing to her lobster before she ate it. Hi, Heather. <laughs> we had a friend who was convinced that if you stand them on their heads, it anesthetizes them enough that you can plunge them in the water. I know all the vegetarians are gasping at this point. <laughs> I don't know. We stood them on their heads. I 
I don't know if it did anything. It made us feel better. <laughs> There's a chapter of Julie and Julia where Julie talks about her lobster murders. Her lobster murders, yeah. Well, anyway, so she's in Maine. I'm not 100% sure if she killed, ate, or even saw any lobsters. She's in Maine hiding from the world. But her work with the poor could not be denied forever. Times changed. The country's mood readjusted its attitude toward her during the Depression. (laughs) I wonder why. Oh, this is what you fought so hard to ameliorate your whole life. I think it's the Depression that made people realize what they had thrown away. And they made up, I guess, if that's an explanation. (laughs) She and the country made up. Jane was given, awarded, the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931 for her life's work, especially since she stepped onto the world stage as a peace and suffrage warrior just before World War One, but she was too ill to attend the ceremony. I often think we wait too long to give our heroes the awards. Remember Clara Bow getting that award when she was in her 70s and not understanding what was happening? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we just need to tell people they're awesome while they're healthy enough to hear it. Jane's last big event had been an invitation from Eleanor Roosevelt to come to the White House and be honored for her work with the Women's International League. And Jane did take part in an around-the-world peace broadcast. And she was the last speaker on this radio program promoting peace around the world. I mean, all these radio stations globally were all organized for this one event. And that was the last time her voice was heard. That's a good way to go out. So after this radio broadcast, Jane fought her cancer for a little while longer. She actually outlived her beloved Mary, but only for a year. During a follow-up operation after a resurgence of her cancer, Jane Addams died on May 21st, 1935. She lay in state at Hull House, her coffin resting on a bed of tulips as generations of Hull House community members, former residents, and world leaders came to pay their respects to a person who had changed their lives. In fact, she had changed the entire world. And that brings us to the end of the life of Jane Addams. Well, there was no shortage for books for Jane, that's for sure. No, and so I'm going to reduce mine to two. I have, I feel bad because I have, maybe I'll just put them on the Pinterest board. I do have quite a few more. I, I got more snippets of different things out of different books this time than at any point since Clara Bow. Like I remember mm-hmm. I have a picture of when I was researching Clara Bow and there were like books open all over the place, little scraps of paper all over the place. And I resorted to cut and paste this time. And I mean, literally, I took the scissor and cut out pieces of writing <laughs> and I taped them in a notebook in little sections. <laughs> Um, And I haven't done that since Clara Bow. So I'm going to reduce my list to two. Here they are. Okay. Good luck. And this is good for her beginning, especially. A Useful Woman, The Early Life of Jane Addams by Joya Diliberto. I found extraordinarily helpful, especially for her early life. And then more seriously and getting more into her philosophy and her views on democracy, etc. Citizen, Jane Addams and the Struggle for Democracy by Louise W. Knight. I think those two taken together will get you a pretty circular picture. Mm-hmm. I think Louise W. Knight has a second book. I know she does. And I, for some reason, I didn't write it down. Maybe I saw her name listed on my list. But I read that one, too. She has two books on Jane Addams, two biographies. So I'll put that on the show notes. I'm, I apologize. 
usually I write everything down because <laughs> I have books on here that I'm not even going to tell you about. And I don't have that one for some reason. I would also, it's, it didn't take me too long to get through Jane Addams, a biography by her nephew, James Weber Lynn. The n- information is kind of dated, but it's based on her remaining letters and, you know, family lore. And he was closer. He knew Jane. So I think that was a good one to get some feel about her. Okay. And there was a YA book that I thought had surprising detail. It's called Jane Addams, A Biography by Robin Burson. And it looks just like one of those YA books that you're just not going to, um, maybe not even YA, maybe even middle grade, that you're just going to kind of read just for background, you know, just real quick. And I was surprised at the level of detail of it. So that was pretty impressive, as was another uh, middle grade was Jane Addams, Champion of Democracy by Judith Bloom Fraden and Dennis Brindell Fraden. Again, it looks like one of those books that you're just going to toss aside because it's, you know, light and that doesn't have a lot of detail. Shockingly, had a lot. I was very impressed with those two. Of course, you could read Jane's own books. Um, I think if you were just going to read one, it would be 20 Years at Hull House which is a good start. It gives, you know, the whole story and her you background. You can actually read it online for free uh, at the digital library at UPenn. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, I've got a link to that. And also it's available in LibriVox for free. Mm-hmm. So if you're an audiobook person or a r- readable book person, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's available to you. Yeah, um, I, I listened to it for free. That's how I was on a long trip and yeah. I got through it. Yeah. As far as kids books goes, uh, the one that I would recommend, I think this is the one you did too. The House That Jane Built, a story about Jane Addams by Tanya Lee Stone, illustrated by Catherine Brown. And we've recommended Tanya Lee Stone books before for other women. She has a big library of biographies that she's written for kids. And I was telling you, that's going to be the one that I'm going to be owning soon because I can't find it. <laughs> and due to the longevity of my loan period with all the Jane Adams books, they are getting a little shirty about my returning of said book, which I have literally got no idea where to even begin looking. Oh, dear. So I, um, I'm proud to say I will be owning that book soon, most likely. <laughs> I hope you can find it so you can put it on a shelf. Or give it away, you know, that'd be nice. It'll turn up in a few years, having been slipped behind something or, (sighs) I don't know. Of course, that's the way it works. I don't have any other books I'm going to recommend, although I think there was a couple more that I did put on the show notes. But there's so many books. I mean, this is just, you know, these are just the ones that we read that we liked. There's so many more out there. So we would be remiss if we didn't direct you to the classic, the Whole House Museum website. Um, Also, corollary to this, the Henry Street Settlement in New York City, which is still in operation, you can see how the settlement philosophies have grown and adapted to today's world because they are very similar in philosophy now to how it all began back in the day. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. good to me. Also, the whole entire essay, Why Women Should Vote, is available online for you to read. I don't remember. I think this is from section one. For some reason, I'm giving you the link to the theme song from Bosom Buddies. Yeah, it was from section one. Okay. The, I actually put the uh, a, a YouTube from Bosom Buddies on the show notes for section one, you know, to give people something to watch. <laughs> and oh, I did okay. put it down. I'm like, you have to have listened to the show to understand why we're giving you Bosom Buddies right now. All righty. Okay. And then Toynbee Hall has still in existence the original inspiration for the settlement movement, Toynbee Hall dot org is still there. There is also a couple of articles I want to recommend on the phenomenon of Boston marriage and even 
Further, should we use the L word for Jane Addams, an article from WBEZ.org? So I thought those were good for a little more background on that aspect of her life. There is an article on Salon called The Dilemma of Wanting to Help Jane Addams to Barack Obama. So I thought that was a good article. I really got something out of that. And the last thing I have is really just a link to the Jane Addams Trail, which also passes by the site of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So there's a couple of different historical places you'll be hitting as you hike that trail. Uh-huh. Speaking of other trails, um, the Legacy Project Chicago.org will give you a link to it. They have the world's only outdoor museum. It's a walk down Halstead Street with plaques and installments um, celebrating the lives of historical LGBTQ people. That's very impressive. And you can actually tour it online a little bit through their map and there's links to all. It's it's a cool website. I'll send you there. And if you are in Chicago and you go to the Hull House Museum and you take the legacy walk down Hall Street, you might as well just take a little tour up to Cedarville and go visit her grave because she is buried in Cedarville. And you can also go to the Cedarville Historical Museum, which if you can't get there, they do have an online virtual tour. And you know how much I like those. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's some documentaries, but no real feature movie. Again, I'm a little bewildered. I don't know that there's that much action. I mean, there's not going to be any motorcycle chases or anything blowing up. Although there really could be something blowing up. If you covered the Pullman strike, you'd have an action sequence there right toward the last third. That's what you want (laughs) in a movie. So if anybody is looking for a um, thesis project for film school, again... You know, we're just giving these out. I guess give us a seat for the premiere. (laughs) You know what, though? I would really be disappointed if somebody made a movie and just focused on her love life. You know, what it was like when, you know, Ellen and Mary and Jane were all living in the same house. You know, what? I mean, it must have been interesting, but that's not the point of the movie. You should really focus on other things. That's all I'm saying. We say as if we've ever been to film school. I know. <laughs> We've watched enough movies, right? <laughs> All righty. Well, that does it for our coverage of Jane Addams. We have received lots of feedback that this was a person that no one was really that familiar with. So we're glad to illuminate the life of someone who honestly has changed your life in this country. If you've ever worked hourly, I think you owe a debt to Jane and company over there at the whole house and reformers of all stripes, men and women from the era of the Gilded Age. And in closing, we're going to leave you with the eulogy written and delivered by journalist Walter Lippmann on the occasion of Jane Addams's funeral. She had compassion without condescension. She had pity without retreat into vulgarity. She had infinite sympathy for common things without forgetfulness of those that are uncommon. That, I think, is why those who have known her say she was not only good, but great. For this blend of sympathy with distinction, of common humanity with a noble style, is recognizable by those who have eyes to see it as the occasional but authentic issue of the mystic promise of American democracy. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! If you learned something today, you know what to do. Grab a friend or two and introduce them to the History Chicks. We would really appreciate it. I have added more pictures over on the Pinterest board, more than I had during part one. So head on over there and explore not just Jane Addams, but we have a board for every single episode. And um, I really do add 10 to 20 pictures daily at uh, stoplights, mostly. Be safe, kids. Be safe. 
The end song is Worth the Fight by Marie Hines, used with permission from Music Alley. Wipe the darkest shades away Happiness, your saving grace Ignorance won't clean the slate Won't find your final resting place task at hand or take a fall when you can stand disregard the reprimand needing more than second hand there's bigger pictures to paint more horizons to chase something better in searching reaching burning bleed in black and white to swim unpredictable whims and you're learning you're learning freedom's worth the fight dreams dashed with apathy popping off my computer and I'm like are you trying to tell me something like this day is brought to you by the letter F (laughs) 
keep pushing it down and it keeps being like, boop, not done. So that's funny. That's funny. 